Before we begin, I'd like to hear what everybody did over their break. Well, I went to the Grand Canyon with my brother and sister. Oh, enough about your damn families. Didn't anybody spend the break alone watching reruns and eating cheese doodles while an unfathomable emptiness permeated their shriveled souls? Ladies and gentlemen, Bidon of America! And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. It is the second half of our double episode week here as BOA Audio returns to the proverbial airwaves. We held the episode back a little bit, a couple days, because I wanted to let the baseball special sit up there for a while before we unleashed this second episode of the week. I will talk all about what's going on here on the episode in just a moment. Let's take care of some BOA audio in-house notes, which I eschewed on the baseball special. We got some sad news, and we have some happy news, so... We will take care of these sad news first. want to dedicate this week's edition of the program to the late, great Jerry E. Smith. He passed away during the month of March while BOA Audio was on hiatus. Jerry appeared on the program way back in Season 1 as well as in Season 2. He was a really cool guy, a really great guy, funny as hell. I had such a blast talking to him. I highly recommend people go back and check out those interviews, especially the final half hour or so of that season one interview. I believe it was a two-part episode uh, because we talked all about Jerry's friendship with the late Jim Keith and really just talked about Jerry's life leading up to his entrance into the world of esoterica and found out just a whole bunch of stuff about him. In the past few years, Jerry had really become kind of a presence online, especially on Facebook, became good friends with BOA's Leslie. I know she was terribly saddened by the passing of Jerry E. Smith, as was I. So, thank you for the appearances on the program, Jerry. Thanks for the memories. I'm going to miss you an awful lot. I wish I had another chance to talk to you, and I will see you someday in the future, my friend, wherever you may be. All right, let's turn that frown upside down and handle the happy news here. Uh, we got double congratulations going out to two contest winners from the official BOA forum, theusofe.com. First one goes out to Bob, also known on the forum as Not a Tame Bob. He was the winner of the BOA March Madness contest. And the other congratulations goes out to none other than Jeremy Vaney of Paratopia fame and Lost Cast fame for winning the WrestleMania Pick'em Contest, an astounding 9 out of 10 for Jeremy on that one. So congratulations to Bob and Jeremy. Now that we've taken care of the in-house notes, let's take a look at what we've got on tap for you here this week on the program. In total, we've got three guests for you. First, a lengthy interview with Bill and Nancy Burns of UFO Hunters, UFO Magazine, and Future Theater fame. 
And then to close out the program, we've got a mini stop and chat interview with Micah A. Hanks. I'll talk about the Micah A. Hanks interview in just a moment. First, let me preview what we've got on tap for you with Bill and Nancy Burns. This is really a fun conversation. I had a blast doing this interview. I envisioned it as a fly-on-the-wall look at Bill and Nancy Burns, dubbed it Dinner with the Burnses, and as the conversation progressed, I kind of started to get a feel for how the flow was going and really let Bill and Nancy play off of each other because they have just amazing chemistry. So for folks who don't like me, and I know you're listening, I'm not sure why, but there are people out there who don't like me and still listen to the show. You'll be happy to know that I barely talk on this episode, except more towards the end, because I got out of the way once I saw what Bill and Nancy were cooking, because it was really something special. Here in the conversation, we touch on a whole bunch of different topics. The main areas of discussion are as follows. The demise of UFO hunters, Bill and Nancy's entrance into the world of ufology with The Day After Roswell, how Nancy's role as editor of UFO Magazine came about, their perspective on the current state of ufology, and a whole bunch of side roads and tangents that we travel down, including stuff on Jamie Shandera, TWA Flight 800, some of the strange ufological sources that send information to Bill and Nancy, Bill Burns' family's remarkable history in the entertainment world, and Bill and Nancy's cameo on the recent Dwayne Johnson film, Race to Witch Mountain. As I said, fly on the wall. It really gives you a chance to see what it would be like if me and Bill and Nancy went out to dinner one night and we just plopped the recorder down on the table. It's pretty close to uh, how the conversation would unfold, and I think folks will enjoy that quite a bit. At the end of the show, stick around because we've got a half-hour conversation with Micah A. Hanks. He's pulling a stop and chat on us and popping onto the program to talk about his new book, Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule. We'll touch on DMT, Monatomic Gold, Mystery Cults, The Psychomantium, Michael Jackson and Mirrors, and much, much more. Cool stuff there with Micah A. Hanks. Definitely want to stay tuned for that at the end of the program. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Bill and Nancy Burns, allow me to give you some background on them. Since there's two guests and they both have lengthy bios, I'm going to touch on really quickly their stuff and sort of parse it down a little bit. Their full bios can be found, of course, on the show page where you are digging this interview at BOA. First, Bill Burns. He is a New York Times bestselling author, a magazine publisher, and a New York literary publishing agent who has written and edited over 25 books and encyclopedias. He's the publisher of the nationally distributed UFO magazine, co-authored two books with George Norrie, Worker in the Light and Journey to the Light, and perhaps most famously co-authored The Day After Roswell with Colonel Philip Corso. Most folks in the mainstream may know Bill Burns as one of the stars of the History Channel series UFO Hunters. Meanwhile, Nancy Burns is a writer, publisher, and editor. She graduated summa cum laude from Princeton University, founded Shadow Lawn Press in 1983, and in 2003 co-founded Filament Books, an electronic book club, in partnership with eBook Technologies. She's the editor of two editions of the McGraw-Hill Personal Computer Programming Encyclopedia and has written two cookbooks. She's also a fiction writer, and her first novel, Cleaning House, has been translated into six foreign languages 
and has been published in nine countries. She's currently a director and the editor-in-chief of UFO Magazine, an international monthly publication, as well as a host on Future Theater, a weekly radio program. Together, their websites are ufomag.com and futuretheater.com. Those should be pretty easy for you to find and figure out. But I'll tell them to you once again, ufomag.com, all one word, and futuretheater.com. That's all one word as well. Bill and Nancy have launched their own podcast. It's been up for the last couple weeks. I highly recommend folks check it out. And that is what we've been talking about here with futuretheater.com. That's the website for the program. And I have a feeling after you listen to this week's edition of BOA Audio, you are definitely going to want to check out Future Theater to hear more of Bill and Nancy together. And now, I feel like I've been talking way too much here at the beginning of the show, but it's our first real serious edition of the program back, so there's a lot to talk about. But all the talking's done now, so let's get down to business. Without any further ado, my friends, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on March 12, 2010. Bill and Nancy Burns discuss the world of ufology on BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Ben All of America Audio. I'm very excited about this week's program because we're doing something a little bit different here. We've got two guests on the show. We've got Ufology's power couple, Bill and Nancy Burns on the show together here, and I'm not sure if they've ever done an interview together before, which I think might be a first time, and that's exciting in and of itself, and Nancy's never been on the show before, so I'm looking forward to getting uh, her on the record here on BOA Audio. Bill was on a couple years ago. We had a great time, and I'm kind of coming at this with the idea of, you know, this is sort of like dinner with the Burnses, and we're just going to chill out and have some... uh, down-home conversation about the world of ufology and the world of esoterica and sort of laid-back deal as if we, you know, just went out to dinner and now we're having some drinks. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Of course, they are behind UFO Magazine, which you can find at ufomag.com. Bill's the co-author of Day After Roswell, and he's also the co-author of uh, two books with George Norrie, Worker in the Light and Journey to the Light, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And, of course, he was one of the stars of UFO Hunters as well. So welcome to the show, Bill Burns. Welcome back. And, Nancy, welcome to BOA Audio. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Yay. We made it. <laughs> yes, we've all, we've, we've all survived. Now, I guess um, we should probably start with sort of just tackling the elephant in the room here, which is the UFO Hunters program. Of course, uh, we know that it got canceled this past October, which is really kind of strange because from what I had heard, you know, in the last year leading up to the cancellation is they were all gung-ho about it, and they were having Bill tape, uh, you know, seasons back-to-back, and it was like, the you know, they were all in on this thing, and now all of a sudden, um, next thing you know, poof, a lot of foot dragging, and, and sort of uh, goes out with a whimper, which was kind of disappointing, obviously, and very surprising. So what what all went down with that? Well, there were two things at work at the same time, and if you saw... The Monster Quest last night featuring uh, Frank Faschino and Stan Friedman talking about the uh, Braxton County Monster, the Flatwoods Monster, and then the Lloyd Pye segment talking about the Star Child. You could see, I think, the major difference between Monster Quest, which was our lead-in on Wednesday nights at 9, mm-hmm. and uh, UFO Hunters. What happened with the UFO Hunters, it was, a, it was a kind of a double whammy. On the one hand, we began getting very close to things that 
the network was told we shouldn't get too close to. I mean, we were in Dulce, New Mexico, and discovered through uh, state trooper, retired state trooper Gabe Valdez, mm -hmm. photographs of a human bovine combined hybrid fetus. Oh, boy. And people began freaking out over that. And then Nancy Talbot, whose name you might know from BLT Research, who mm -hmm. did the work on the Bucks County trace evidence, uh, Phyllis Budingers, um, who did the work on the Betty Hill dress, did the work on the Delphos, Kansas soil. She had said that if you think you're dealing with aliens, you're out of your mind. Uh, what you're dealing with is big pharmacy and the government coming up with a whole bunch of things, um, cultivating um, human ovum in in this kind of serum that comes out of these embryos. In other words, they were making, um, I'll call them somas for better terms, bodies for harvesting organs, for doing implants, and possibly one person from a three-letter organization who shall go nameless suggested for finding ways to build almost like the immortal soldier by using bovine human hybrid organs to replace organs and, and kind of create, it was almost like a Dr. Frankenstein thing. Yeah. Was that was one. We got too close to the truth on that. We took uh, very telling photographs of Area 51, which they didn't like. And uh, at Dugway, Arizona, we kind of sealed our fate in dealing with the um, material that Dave Rosenfeld, Alien Dave, gave us showing photographs of a secret weapon that we have over Dugway, again, that was on the air, of shooting a beam into the air with kind of like UFO-type craft, we don't know whose they are, ours, theirs, nobody knows, around this beam. So we really went too far. Then the budgets were extremely high, and the more we the more seasons we had, the more there were issues with budgets and travel and insurance and things like that because we really were pushing the envelope. As a result, the network began turning on us while we were in the Bahamas doing the Navy base down there. And it was pretty much written in the cards that they were really mad at us for going too far. And they told us straight up that, oh, your ratings are really weak. And we were hitting ratings, by the way. Our ratings were beating um, John Stewart's Daily Show, Housewives of New York, some of the big reality yeah. shows. We were, oh, we were really slapping them around in terms of ratings. And then we were told, oh, in the 18 to 19-year-old demographic, you were very weak. <laughs> and we were falling on the floor because we were beating our lead-in. In fact, people, they were getting more mileage out of Monster Quest in the last 15 minutes, because people would tune in for UFO Hunters the following show. So they, I mean, they really got nasty at the end of the day. And as you could see, what they did was <clears throat> they took episodes that we'd done. Like last night's episode with Frank Fischino was our webisode um, from uh, season two. And it's up on the web. Folks can see it on the UFO Hunters site. They took our episodes, re-homogenized them, putting in serious skeptics to debunk the stuff that we'd already done. I mean, last night's episodes were just phenomenal when they brought the debunkers in to kind of undo what we did. And then somebody from one of the three-letter agencies said it's payback because you guys went too far. So they're making history and ABC do payback. So those are the two issues. Well, wow. you know what? And I would, I would kind of disagree just a little about the whole, you know, you're getting too close to the truth. I think that's a glamorous thing to say, but I think if that were the case, there'd be other indications. You know, um, you, you know, we never got any kind of threats or, um, 
you know, it, that just sounds to me like that's not necessarily the case. I think maybe it could be something very mundane. You know, the network just got tired of that topic, which doesn't really make any sense. No, because if they had, <clears throat> you wouldn't have seen the shows last night. I mean, here's a case last night where they actually took a, a UFO show, Frank Faschino's Shoot 'em Down book about the 1952 air war of UFOs, that's the, the context for the Flatwoods monster. They removed all the UFOs and made it a monster show and then and then basically made the show very hokey by saying the monster still walks. Yeah, well, I mean that show was uh that show struck me as classic disinformation because with my limited um experience in the field I can tell you that the story behind the quote unquote monster is a very political story. You know, it's it's kind of a historical uh, American story that that we we tried to do Frank's story the first season and then this, and I say we because I I've been part of this whole thing um, kind of in the background and that's kind of I think a story that we'll bring out on our show more yeah um, not because um, I want the glory but because I think that the I think the real story should come out of how the show got created and stuff I think it's unfair that. And I guess that's part of the whole thing. What you see on TV isn't really real. When you've been part of creating a TV show and you sit and, and watch it in the audience, you realize, um, geez, TV is really not telling you very much of the truth. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of that's kind of scary when you think about it because you want to believe something. I mean, you're paying good money for cable or good money for the set, you know, and you want to believe what you're seeing. It's, you know, it's not entertaining if you feel that you're being totally lied to. So I saw some of the episodes get created and then get destroyed in in the on the cutting room floor, and I'm sure that's what happened last night with Monster Quest, uh, because I know for a fact that um, Al Lemberg was part of the show. He's one of our columnists on the magazine. Yeah. And um, he was part of the show. He he actually was on the show with his UFO mag cap on, which would be really was cool. But he, um, you know, he did not expect to be on the cutting room floor. Uh, he expected, you know, and he also, they all made friends, here's the weird part, they made friends with all the, um, the people involved with that show. You know, I know, I know they had done some filming with UFO Hunters, and they all weren't as friendly, they didn't hit it off as well, you know, so they had high hopes that because everybody was so nice to them, that this was going to be fabulous. And that's also interesting, you know, it's sort of like you can't, you know, you can't believe anything they tell you when they leave. They say you did a great job and then they go home and then they just, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then it's like, like getting, oh, well, that was a dog yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you're getting, you know, it's like the old-fashioned gotcha journalism, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, did you see the show? Uh, the Monster Quest last night? No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, what's so weird is that there were two big stories in UFO, in the UFO world that, that, were jammed together for that show. Yeah, that's the is, strange part, yeah. Yeah, it like, is strange. Because they're totally, you know, they're literally uh, worlds apart. You know, different countries, different eras, different everything. And each of them would be a normal, complete show, you know, in a normal world. In fact, both of them appeared. Lloyd Pye's Starchild episode uh, was a major part of the segment in season three. I think our third show, Alien Intent, dealing with the science behind the star child skull. You know, let, me, let me say this, just just for Tim's um, edification, you probably know uh, Lloyd Pye and, and the skull. Absolutely, you know that? Yeah. Well, you know how, um, you know, he has certain, there are certain uh, characteristics of that skull that, you know, they if you're going to shoot the thing down, you've got to shoot those things down because, you know, it's like any other story. If it's not real, you know, tell us, and we'll all go, wander on and go, go exactly. on about our business. Yeah. And one of the things that UFO Hunter showed was that the 
brain capacity, and it was well, well done on UFO hunters. It was one of the one of the scenes I loved. The brain capacity of the of the Starchild skull is way bigger than the brain capacity of the regular human skull. And the way they did that was with bird seed. They um, they had Pat and um, Kevin, you know, keep pouring bird seed in until it was full, and then they measured the bird seed. They like dumped the bird seed out into uh, measuring cups. Yeah. And and the star child skull was way way more brain capacity. Now, when the lady on the show last night said that the skull was um, distorted because it was like uh, they call it cradle boarding, yeah, which is sort of um, you know you, like you like you jam a baby's head um, into like a you, ring or something, and it yeah, shapes you wrap it, it. yeah. And but see but but logically, if you were to do that to a human, you wouldn't be changing the brain capacity. Duh. Exactly. Yeah, you wouldn't you increase the density. You wouldn't increase like how much space was in there. You would just misshape it. Misshape it, and and that's a really big deal. Yeah. So you see, and so you know, I mean, if uh, my goodness, everybody in UFO, if anybody saw um, UFO hunters, that big, that was a big, that's a big missing link in terms of, you know, forget debunkers. Or forget, you know, like I mean, we're more we're, we're acting more scientific than with birdseed, than than um, you know, the lady with uh, she, you know, they had a, a doctor with purple, purple latex gloves, well, deep he, purple. Well, here's a question that I think both of you will definitely have <laughs> have thoughts on now. Okay, so the show's over with and everything. If you had it to do all over again, would you? Because I know that you know you got a lot of flack from people. Who, quite frankly, were either jealous or didn't quite understand how the yeah, how yeah. the television business worked, and were under the impression that Bill was sitting there in the editing bay, right? Or, <laughs> saying, or, or, cut or, this, or cut that, like no, or, or worse, <laughs> sitting in the producing chair, exactly, um, saying who gets on and who doesn't get on. And, uh, and let me just go on lone record as saying uh, we have approximately right now five raving enemies in the world um, who who are making it a, uh, like a life's mission to to be mean to us, and every single one of those people tried to be on the show, partially got on the show, ended up on the cutting room floor, et cetera, through no fault of Bill's. But they do blame Bill. Exactly, and it's, yeah. yeah, so that's pretty cool. I won't, you know, no no need to name names, but that's ironic that every one of those people um, was really sweet, really nice, all psyched up and, and you know, wanted to be on the show. Some In some cases got filmed. Um, and in other cases, you know, I mean, it's sort of like, so the show created this, this, um, this, at first, the book, and then the show created this cauldron of hatred, for sure. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, yeah, I, I'll let Bill answer. But of course, I would go through it again, even though I was miserably, um, you know, it was lonely for for you know for the person the, the family left behind yeah. while Bill traveled. But yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we are pushing we are pushing versions of the show. I'm working with a number of writer producers now at different cable channels to push versions of the show, um, maybe with a younger group to do the same thing. And uh, I'm, I'm completing a manuscript right now. Basically, it's called Aliens in America. And the premise of the manuscript is it is a UFO hotspot travel guide. Not so much a hotspot, but if you want to see famous UFO sites, for example, Howard Menger and the Highbridge incident. If you want to go to Highbridge, New Jersey, you will, and here's the case, it's in the book, the story of Howard Menger and Valiant Thor and Jill and all of the Venusians who were at the Pentagon, Stranger at the Pentagon, uh, Frank Strangis and Howard Menger, two friends, what happened when the Space Brothers came to cure Howard Menger, son of cancer. I mean, it's, it's 
all that lore from the 1950s contactee movement, but it took place 15 minutes away from where we are in Highbridge, New Jersey. So if you want to go there, this is where it is. This is where to stay. This is where to eat. This is how to get there. Betty and Barney Hill, how to get to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and go to UFO meetings at the Loaf and Ladle and things like that. Yeah. Going to Washington, D.C., going to going yeah, to Flatwood. And, and, and your point is? My point is, I'm pushing that um, idea as a UFO travel show to see if maybe one of the networks will pick that up. I certainly wouldn't go traveling, but uh, we come up with a cast and a crew to do that. We're no, but I, I would absolutely hate that, and I would I would urge you not to personally spend your time, you know, wasting your time with that sort of well, thing. Well... And, and because I'll tell you, if, if you have a chance, I think you should do the exact same show, exact same show, only do it better. Um, I really think that if you could get, um, if you can, if you're lucky enough to get Pat and you're lucky enough to get Ted, and lots of other people who, I mean, there's there's so many stories and so many experts, um, you know, and I think you should do the exact. I think that you know, let's 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 be grateful they created such a nice little frame and such a nice little template. So I would say do the exact show, uh, only do it better if at all possible. You know, and then of course if we can't do that. You could you could then say yeah there's something. Well, we are pushing. Well, as you know, like we are pushing that same show with other cable networks, the exact same UFO Hunter show, maybe slightly changing the name because nobody really trademarked. In fact, they can't trademark the name because UFO Magazine owns the name of uh, the trademark for UFO and television. But we are setting up that very same show but, with but a number I think of the networks. Facts, I think the fact that nobody came in and scooped it up that you're you've you have sold things your whole life. In the um, entertainment worlds, you've sold movies, TV, books, all kinds of stuff. The fact that you have not been able to sell the, the, the next show is kind of troubling and worrisome. It's not as though um, you have to step back and say, what have we done wrong in this case? Because we were really, we were all really uh, becoming a, a smooth-oiled engine toward the, toward the end of this. The shows right. were really good. People didn't like Kevin that much. Some people, and some people loved Kevin, and et cetera. But it, but it, but geez, rather than what did you do wrong, it's sort of like what is going on behind the scenes, and of course it could be all Hollywood. And Tim, you know a little about that. Yeah, it, yeah. It could be all Hollywood. You know, like the money wasn't spent properly by people in charge of the money. And I don't know whether you can say that. I don't know if that's legal. Well, sure you can. I mean, you can. Uh, you can say that. You can say that there were budget issues with the show, and that the network may have been uh, concerned over the way um, items in the budget were disposed of or allocated. I know that insurance became a really big issue during the course of the show with some of the um, flying scenes we had. The helicopter scenes that were cut, the skin diving scenes, all that's true. And I think it's a case of what did we do right rather than what yeah, did we why, do wrong. Why would there be like five seasons of Axemen where the, um, the uh, insurance for something like that has got to be through the roof? Every scene, you've got locks coming at your face. You're exactly right. I mean, that's, that's you have and to you've look got, at that. And you've got power tools. You've got, what do you call those things that chop down wood? Chainsaws? Cha you've got chainsaws. Yeah. Well, like. Then you have to kind of, like Bill says, you kind of have to look at it then from that perspective, and you have to say then maybe, maybe you guys were stepping on toes or something like that. Yeah, but see the thing is, if you're stepping on toes, every every UFO story I've ever heard, you know, there's been black helicopters over your house, there have been people following you, there you get yeah, weird nobody messages. was bugging you guys like zero, yeah. and, and and sadly, um, ever since I, we, I've been part of the magazine, zero, and I and I for, with the magazine since we don't try to. 
we don't try to we you can't break a story in a monthly or by you know yeah you you just can't not with the internet you break a story on the internet period you can't break a story with print and so as a result i try to, we we try to be a magazine of records so that you have a record of what's going on forever but um Geez, I mean, I, but but here's the other thing. Here, here's the weird thing, and I, let me just say this. We occasionally get weird stuff that comes in the mail or weird phone calls, and, and we have to use our judgment as to whether or not to follow it you know, like the like like we got one recently, in and I won't I won't tell you know I won't tell what googling you know I did to figure out okay fine it's it's that group again and they're trying to you know they're trying to get our goat yeah but it was real cloak and dagger, and it was pretty cool because the the people went to some trouble they put their own they put our our address as return address and it was oh it was like eighteen dollars for you know a little package and it was all very mysterious and there was a, a cd in inside and it was all kind of to the point where we were a little bit afraid to put the cd in the computers because you know you could, could be, yeah it could be like a yeah. virus or something yeah yeah or like uh, or it could be like mission impossible or something you could just you see smoke coming out of <laughs> yeah. your drive it's like oh great um but so so we literally and then so we we actually took a, a hardly ever used computer used it to check it out and the minute the minute the cd came up we knew oh yeah right it's that guy um and we went on and but and the guy this is i love this this is so cool the guy or who, the guy or a woman whoever it was wanted us to um in order to, in order to say that we agreed to go to the next stage we had to take um we had to put a symbol on our website down at the and on a certain place on our website that only they would notice oh jeez what a pain in the neck you know yeah. <laughs> i mean, <laughs> I mean you get over yourself that's what i <laughs> right it's like putting an x on your window right and then they would know yeah yeah, yeah. and and so you know and i i thought i love that that element um and then of course uh during the course of the show Again, I, I don't think I can name names or anything, but we we were scammed by the, by a real scammer, uh, and the the scammer said that he had. And I don't, Tim, did we talk about this back in the day? Because it was so hilarious what was going on. I don't know. Um, this this guy who said he had parts of the, um, you know, he he actually worked for a government company, had parts of the Roswell stuff. Uh, yeah, no, that, I don't think I've heard that story. No. Well, just to, to make a really long story, sh and then we can go back to it if it doesn't need to get short, but. I, I, sadly, I can only tell you the same thing with this thing ju that just happened. For a brief shining minute, or sadly, sometimes 24 hours, you think to yourself, this is it. You know, H has that ever happened to you, Tim, where you think, now I've really found something? Sometimes, but rarely. I'm usually yeah. sort of late to the dance, but I prefer it that way because then I don't get mixed up in a lot of serpos and yeah. <laughs> everything else. But But you always, I mean, you wouldn't be doing this work. You wouldn't be bothering if you didn't hold out the possibility that, you know, the, the next day somebody's going to call you and say, you know what, I've got some stuff and I'm scared and I don't want to know who to tell to and all this kind of stuff. And yeah. so you, yeah. But the thing is, um, that's where I was going. You have to use some discretion. And in fact, we've had a lot of people tell us a lot of things over the years, sometimes that things that make you do look behind you while you're talking. And they've been government people, um, long-time government people, time and time again. And of course, started with Corso, um, and then Bill did a Bill did a book years ago. Uh, he's done two two he's done two scary books, three many many scary books in the true crime field. But one scary book was you know Roswell could you know uh, Corso's story is kind of kind of you know out there, but he did a book uh, originally that had me so scared 
because this guy came came to us and said, I used to kill people. Uh, he was in the mafia. I used to kill people for, for Hoover. Um, Hoover oh, had wow. a death squad. And my God, that was scary. Um, and he was telling us back then, this was a long, long, long time ago. He's still alive, still an old man. He's a great, great, great guy. Um, he he was telling us about the kinds of listening things that can happen. Like, he came to our house with bodyguards, and after he left, you know, I began to do research and stuff, and I found out they can just kind of leave little things in your house. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I was just freaking out. But anyway, so I was really scared about that because that was, that was an amazing story. And it turns out to be pretty much true. And, um, you know, and then what was the other? There was another scary one. Oh, the shooting down of Flight 800. That was pretty scary. Where the government, the FBI actually, um, you know, long, again, a long story. We can, we can go into that some other time, but, you know. Well, the FBI subpoenaed me. Raided right, the, right. And raided the publisher. They actually raided the, a publisher to demand a copy of the manuscript. And the publisher said to them, well, the book's printed here. You can have a free book. <laughs> and, and they were furious. And no, they, no, no, but I disagree. The FBI was really nice because they called you first and said, come across your fax machine. You're going to see a shield. Oh, right. They did call. There was crack of dawn. They called. And, and that then, was nice of them. And they said, don't freak out. You're being subpoenaed. And the reason is because everybody involved with this guy, um, they, they were trying to entrap this guy. Who, well, Jim Sanders. Jim I mean, we could say his name. Jim Sanders. Yeah. His wife is a stewardess, and who was she was given um, bits of um, a seat back uh, cushion material to go and take to a lab. And then they tried to entrap this couple. And so they, they wanted to follow the money, so anybody that was involved with them had to be subpoenaed. Yeah. And then we had to pay the lawyer and everything just to oh, be... Man. Yeah. So anyway, so though, but see, that's what I'm saying. Nothing, zero, when it comes to UFOs here. And everybody says they are so top secret and stuff. But so, so that tells me either we're so far, so far from uh, the truth, you know, um, or or it's a big mystery like like I suspect. And you know, who knows? Well, look. The point is this: um, we were also tracked by individuals who came from various government agencies on UFO hunters who would give us these little missives, these little messages. No, no, no. I, but these are people who say that. Not well, you have no proof. I mean, that's the point. I mean, you're not going to say, could I have your National Security Agency official top secret badge, please, with your, <laughs> yeah. with your eye codes on it? I mean, you're just not going to say that. Mm. But, but they would drop hints, and one of the hints was that um, <clears throat> ABC, which owns History Channel, mm. and History Channel are going to be doing real big payback because of what they did over at Delcy and some of the other things. And uh, it turns out that shows like the alien abduction show last year, shows like uh, what they did with um, the Star Child and with the Flatwoods Monster, where, you, where the network has to give so much time to these debunkers who come on and they're totally prejudiced. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. People who are, comp I saw it when they yeah, did that. We should all get into that business. You know, if we all we should be debunkers. Yeah, we, we, they're we, the ones that make the money. We'd have exactly. we'd have a steady we'd have a steady job. That's right, because you're always going on Larry King and places like right, that. Right, and you say the same things over and over again. That's oh, right. Yeah. yeah, well, there's way more ufologists than there are debunkers. So yeah, but who would be a better debunker than a, you know? But but who who would be a better debunker than a ufologist who says, you know what? I've I've seen the light. Now I'm going to debunk. Right, exactly. You show me the piece of the UFO. Well, the government has a piece of the UFO, so you're never going to show you a piece of a UFO. And people with, let's just say, <clears throat> enormous financial resources, best way I could put it, people with enormous financial resources are able to claim, look, we can do the science on 
these kinds of uh, artifacts, pieces of skin, flesh, you know, animal paws, yeah. things like that. We can do the we can do the uh, biological research. So therefore, give it to us, and so people will say, oh, look, I found this in Utah, for example, and they'll give it to this okay, person. Well, okay, so then, yeah, so, so that's, there is, there's the path, maybe. And, Tim, have you talked to people ever, and I, I'm, see, now I should go and look at your archives and see, make sure before I ask you this, but have you done any shows on uh, Skinwalker? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I've talked to Colm Kelleher and George now. Okay, well, that's where I think, it really, it's really scary because really big money has been thrown at that stuff. And that's where I would say, if you want to look at conspiracy, follow black budget money if you can. Yeah, oh, like you the know NIDS what I mean? type of thing? Yeah, well, if, I don't know whether NIDS is black budget because we all know the name. And yeah, that's true. But they're very but, secretive in the sense that they don't really let you know what they're doing exactly. Yeah, and, and the, thing I've, the thing we've been privy to over and over and over again are government people who have themselves, or, you know, military people who have themselves been approached to join the, uh, or their friends have, to join the black budget. And you really don't come out of it ever. You know, you're going to be kind of working for them the rest of your life. And it's a, it's a vast, vast, vast sum of money being used for something, you know, probably for wonderful weapons that are keeping us safe, I hope. You know, and for satellites that can hear exactly what we're saying, I hope. You know. Yeah. Well, we we bumped into one of those satellites uh, inadvertently over uh, the skies in Las Vegas. With the first time we went on the road to uh, do a show on another guy who, for 24 hours, we thought, "Wow, this is it. We've done it." Yeah. You know. Yeah. Colonel X. Remember yeah. Colonel X, Ben Woods. Yeah. Right. And that's that. You should tell Tim that's right because that's actually closer to maybe stumbling on toes. But here's the thing: the way you describe all these bumping into things at this point in time, it really sounds like you could re you could sell a show like Abbott and Costello, you know, UFOs, <laughs> you know? Well, that's how we were in the first episode. It was literally Abbott and Costello meet the UFO, meet the guy from space. <laughs> we were uh, Colonel X, Ben Woods, who had been working with Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project, uh, had contacted us and said, look, I know where there is a reverse-engineered spacecraft, and it's over Las Vegas. It's in Nevada. I'm a colonel in the Air Force. I'm seeing this thing every night. It's up in the air. You could fill in the blank. That's what he said. So we began talking to him, and he sent us photographs of this thing, this kind of slivery object. It was in one of the. It was a cover of one of our issues all the way back, probably 2006, I think. And uh, we got this blowback from Stephen Greer's group. How dare you well, deal with him? Sure. How dare you talk to Colonel X? This is us, and Dr. Ravenstar is going out there, well, et that, cetera, that, et cetera. That felt, you know, there, there you might say conspiracy. That felt so um, official government-y as opposed to kind of clumpy UFO-y. You know, in other words, they didn't act like, you know, like a guy in his basement with his file cabinet. You know, they acted like you really stepped on the wrong toes here. Oh, absolutely. So that, like less a, like a, it was less like a turf war and more like they were the handlers of this guy, maybe? Oh, yeah, yeah but somehow yeah. they were the ones responsible for this guy. And so we said, you know what? We're a magazine. And you know where we live? In America. 
And in America, you get to publish things in magazines that aren't libelous, defamatory, obscene, et cetera, et cetera. And so we published it. So they were furious. So we set up a UFO Hunters episode going out to Las Vegas. And we go out there. Actually, there you go. We did break that story because we kind of exposed them. Yeah, we did break and the we, story. We, uh, we did it in such a way as to not get sued because that's the other thing. They were definitely threatening. They were threatening. All um, kinds of things. Yeah. So we go out to Las Vegas. We broke a story. And we found that that same object, or we believe it's the same object, was hovering over um, the city of Las Vegas and could be seen from Jim Sanders, DWA Flight 800, his driveway. So we go out there, we film the object, we go up to the uh, National Forest north of Las Vegas, way up, about eight, eight 9,000 feet, and we get this clear night and we film the object. We've got a hugely powerful telescope fixed to our camera and a star chart so that we were able to plot whether if this thing were a satellite, that's one thing. It was motionless, so it wasn't, so it wasn't a, um, a space station or anything. And there were no stars because we had the star map linked to the – Wait, wait. I thought it was a space – I thought it was a space – I thought it was geosynchronous. It was – yes, but it wasn't the space station, which is not geosynchronous because that you could see moving across the sky. This was – this was something else, but it was not a star, not one of our own satellite. Well, not one of our own Earth orbit satellites. It was something else. Sure enough, we get images of this thing, right? And I text Nancy. I'm in Vegas, and I text Nancy back at the office. We got it. We got the UFO. Well, at that moment. The lights flicker on that object because I hear these screams from outside from the camera crew. What's going on? What's going on? The object flickers, and then you could see the outline of the object sink below the horizon. So we're like flabbergasted. Then we drive over to Sanders' house. We pack up. We drive back to Sanders' house. He says, yeah, the thing disappeared. As we're leaving, as our cars are leaving Jim Sanders' driveway, he um, he calls us and says, guess what? The object is back up. So I check with Bill Scott. Bill Scott uh, is the guy I wrote the book Space Wars with and uh, Counter Space with, and he's a good friend, and we've worked with him for years, etc. And he says, don't you know what they were doing? You guys picked up one of our newest surveillance platforms. This is the platform that's over downtown Baghdad. You picked it up. And they could see you, they could see your license plates, they could scrub everything coming off your um, your BlackBerry, they could do all that. And as soon as you hit send, they scrubbed it, they knew you were there, and when you left, they could see from your, uh, uh, they knew your license plates, they could see you go, and uh, they just uh, put their lights back on and uh, got to a higher altitude. And we said, well, how could they do that? And he's going, well, let's just say that some people speculate that we have um, anti-gravity abilities. We have the ability to utilize anti-gravity, whether it's um, some kind of electromagnetic envelope or shifting polarity. We have that, and it just came back up. So you guys tripped into something big, and they're funning with you. Yeah. Now let me ask you, let me take it down a different path a little bit here now. From what I can recall from our original interview, Bill, it sounds like you first got sort of into this UFO thing via your initial meeting with uh, Colonel Corso, and he was telling you one story, and then it drifted into what eventually became the day after Roswell. Is that before that you weren't in, you weren't involved in UFOs, right? No, we weren't. Uh, we all knew about the crash at Roswell from the 1970s, but 
we weren't really doing any UFO books, and it was really Corso that, uh, and I didn't get hooked up with Corso. In fact, I never got hooked up with Corso. I was working for the motion picture company that had purchased his life story rights. And the purpose of that life story rights option had nothing to do with UFOs. Everything to do with uh, missing POWs because Phil Corso was the person working for um, General Eisenhower who negotiated – he was – Back on Eisenhower's, uh, he was a a military liaison at the White House. Corso, who had also worked for MacArthur during the Korean War, targeting um, Soviet and Chinese emplacements for nuclear nuclear weapons, Corso helped negotiate Little Switch, Big Switch. And in the prisoner exchange with North Korea, Ike, President Eisenhower, had to sign off on leaving American POWs in China and the Soviet Union, people who would never return. And that was the story that we were doing for a movie of the week. And I was working on a book with Jim Sanders and ultimately um, Chip Beck, who was a CIA station chief, and uh, Phil Corso. And when Corso literally dropped two bombs at a kind of a, a big intake meeting, one was that he worked for Senator Richard Russell during the Kennedy, uh, during the Warren Commission hearings, and knew all about the Warren Commission and dropped some major, major ordinance at that meeting. And uh, also that he was a foreign technology desk um, director and later the deputy director of Army R&D, um, basically helping to um, filter uh, technology from the crash at Roswell for reverse engineering. When he dropped those, they stopped what they were doing and said, that's the book, and Nancy came in and yeah, but, said, but this here, is your book. Yeah, but rem- remember this. this is, there's a little more background. By the time we got all the Corso material, and that's literally, uh, I, can sh- I can show you pictures, Tim. That's literally boxes and boxes of material. By the time we got all that material um, and had to go through it, this is after the, once he dropped that bomb at the meeting about, you know, having the Roswell stuff, um, this was a, maybe a year and a half before, this was around, uh, 2000 and, or, uh, 1996, okay. thereabouts. But 1997 was fast approaching. And I was very aware of that because I was born in 47. I was aware I'd be turning 50 in 1997. And so I knew that if I'm turning 50, so is the city of Roswell. You know, and that whole uh, okay, story. Yeah, so then you wanted to get the book. Right. It wasn't. It didn't. You know, and and you kind of. Uh, it wasn't rocket science that if you had a if you had a story, any story about Roswell, uh, you had a big story coming up for the 50th anniversary. It's just we're we're book packagers. Uh, Bill and I. We have a company. We've had a company now for 27 years. Um, Shadow Lawn Press, and we've been packaging books. And so, you know, packaging just means how to put things in their best light and how to get these books out there and know when to, you know. And so that was a no-brainer. But over through the course of time, we got a ton of material from Corso. He basically dumped on us everything he ever, everything he ever wrote, anything he ever cut out of a magazine, or every kind of thing he collected from the government and stuff, um, hearings and things. And so we basically had that stuff to go through. And and in the course of it, he had already tried to sell the story. This was already packaged into his own life story. He wrote this endless book called I Walk with Giants. And it was 
you know, the typical person who needs a book packager. He basically wrote a book that was like 9,000 pages long. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it, and it weighed a ton, and it was it was in a loose leaf kind of format. And you basically, or those the spring those spiral things. Yeah. And you basically, you know, you it wasn't very interesting because you basically it was you know I was born in a small mining town, and it went on from there. Um, and, so, and he was. That's exactly what he was born in a small yeah. mining town. But the thing about it is, within that material, and I, when we still have the material, and, and one of these days we need to go through it, because now uh, his son and Bill are still um, hoping to do more work with that material. The Corso Enterprise, whatever the thing is, son, his, it's his son now has all the rights to his stuff, and Bill. But anyway, the thing is, it was already in there. Um, and I just think that it, if because it was 1996... And because book packages were involved, who in in our case, because I was born in '47, I was I'm a fiction writer, and I was writing a fiction about um, aliens, okay. previous long, and so I was kind of you know I had done some research and I was kind of aware of this kind of thing. So when I saw that portion, I I knew I was I would be able to guide Bill in creating a story that would have um, some relevance for our country, et cetera, and. Um, you know, when we saw what he was saying, you know, the biggest thing any packager would say, and, and Simon and & Schuster ended up being the ones to um, to publish this book, the biggest thing any publisher would say is, we're going to get sued like crazy. I mean, you're saying that, you know, IBM and Bell Lab and uh, et cetera, et cetera, didn't really come by their material except, you know, through government and stuff, and we're going to get sued like crazy. And so everything had to be vetted very, very carefully. And and as I've always said, you know, no matter what you say about the story, we we, we never got sued. Simon Schuster never got sued, and Simon Schuster is a big publisher. Exactly, yeah, and everybody's always looking for a payout, so. Yeah, I mean, for sure, and so there's something to be said for that, I think. Sure, um, imagine the bombshell that AT&T, which invented the transistor, right, Britannian Shockley, you would have thought that somebody would have bellied up to challenge that patent and say, hey, wait a minute, you guys didn't invent this. It came from outer space. You should just give it away. It's free. It came from the government. Not a peep. Yeah. yeah. So now Bill obviously uh, co-writes the book, and then I guess you're just plunged into this world of, of ufology, right? I mean, this crazy, zany world of, of people. That's for sure. Well, the way that worked... Yeah, Tim. I mean, the way that worked, Nancy and I, um, we went to Roswell uh, to launch the book in 1997 with Phil Yeah, Corso. but um, when did you, when did you um, get interviewed? Ah, LaPointe. So Nancy and I go to Roswell to launch the book. Okay, and up and until this point, like, no one's... Well, nobody knows. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean the UFO field is incestuous to the point where everybody knows everybody else. And, and but so. nobody knows this, Tim, okay. because Simon & Schuster kept the book under wraps, okay. gradually releasing pre-publishing information. But as we all know, the UFO community is not only incestuous, it's insular. So it's oh, only, but wait, but wait. It's also insane. It's also insane, but exactly. it is in this little bubble of its own – it's like a bar fight inside of a bubble. Right, so <laughs> that's exactly that's the best. Description. So there are no links. So there are no links to the outside. It's just whatever happens. It's like whatever happens inside ufology stays in ufology. Yeah. So nobody knows about this book except for what Simon and Schuster is slowly releasing. And Corso was ecstatic. This is his moment in the sun. This is this is the culmination of what he wants. This is his book. So we go to Roswell, and there the folks from UFO magazine come up to us. No, 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 that's not the way it happened. 
Yeah, they came up to us at Roswell, remember, because the, the story had already appeared, the review of the book had already appeared in UFO magazine when uh, we were at Roswell. No, no, what I'm saying to you is, go, go back, what you said was you met the UFO magazine folks in Roswell. No, we had, I'm sorry, that was, that was, that was, the, I met them after we came back from Roswell, but they had already reviewed the book and had given a really positive review of the book. Before, no, no, but did they, did, did they do it before, no, they didn't do it before you went to Roswell. I think so, because no. one of the ecstatic things was no, because for Simon and Schuster that the review was coming out in your No, not, not at all, not at all, because what happened was we didn't, no, seriously, we didn't do, and, and, and this is sadly, I have a photograph that I can show you and we can put up, I should put up on our blog or something soon, uh, of our paperwork, because we've just recently moved again, and our paperwork is right now in tall piles of, of uh, paper. And so somewhere in there is this whole historical record in paper, and I can actually eventually, you know, show you that I can not only just tell you this, but I can say, okay, here's here's the receipts or something. But what happened was when we went to Roswell in '97, the book was um, it, it was it was a serious uh, book, hardcover, and it was it was getting a serious um, debut into the world. It had nothing to do with UFO magazine. That would have been considered way too low. Oh, no. The New York Times had reviewed the book. That's what I'm saying. Not only that, uh, remember, the it was on the front page of the New York Times because of, of Strom Thurmond, but it was NBC-type thing. It was Dateline. And right. that sort of thing. So basically, no, there, there, there was no UFO magazine until, because here's why I remember, because when you came back from that interview, all the excitement had already come and gone. We were already living in our little house. We were living, our life had begun to quiet down. And in fact, it, um, it, our life was very happy because we were on the bestseller list for something like 13 weeks, I think. Yeah. 13 or 14 weeks. And nothing was more exciting than that for book people because it's the culminate, it's the best thing that can happen to you. And we decided, since we'd been in the book business so long, that every week we were, we were on the list, we were going to go out to dinner to celebrate, just Bill and myself, just, yeah. to, just because it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And um, every single solitary week that it was on the list, we did, in fact, schlep out to a restaurant and celebrate because it was so bi such a big deal. And the thing was, by the time that, y that you were interviewed for UFO Magazine, it had really quieted down. You, you might have still been on the list. But I remember you came home. And at this point, we're now doing the smaller stuff, and life had, had gotten back to normal. Um, and, there, you know, and all this infighting in the UFO field, none of that had touched us because we didn't know about the UFO field. Exactly, yeah. And, and here's the other thing. The amazing story that was going on in Roswell. Now, in Roswell, I remember we met Kevin Randall, and we've since become friends. But at, the po at that point, he was not too happy because um, – he must have got. I think he did get an. He didn't get an advanced copy. He sadly got a um, an un um, like a bootleg copy. No, 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 no. Here's what happened. No, it was an uncorrected proof. Or no, something. here's what happened. He didn't even get that. What he got happened, the proposal. I think. Yes. What happened was, again, these things happen. Since it was not Corso that we were working with directly. I mean, we were writing it with him. But before the book was even sold to Simon & Schuster, we'd written a proposal. And the proposal had to go through the movie company, just, to, just how Hollywood works. Mm -hmm. So the motion picture company that had licensed Corso's rights had to vet the proposal to make sure they liked it because the whole purpose was the book was going to sell a movie. 
Not the book was going to sell the book. The book's purpose was to sell a motion picture. So they have to vet the proposal. In the vetting process, the motion picture company added the fact that Corso was a member of MJ-12. Really? Right. So in the proposal, which they put in, they said, this is what you got to send out. And out it went that he was an MJ-12. So it wasn't in the book because it wasn't true. It was never in the book. So it wasn't true. He was never a member of MJ-12. Oh. And in fact, you know what, Tim? Here's the cool thing. I obviously have copies of that proposal, and I will actually find that because, you know what, this kind of stuff, people then start to, you know, then this becomes a whole train of... Right. Yeah, so I actually can physically find that information. So this is before digital, by the way. This is before digital. So the proposal goes out, right, with MJ-12 in it to a number of I mean, of before the Internet. Before the Internet, yeah. So one of, this is 95, this is 1995. One of the publishers gives it to Kevin Randall, because Kevin had written which the book on Roswell. Was it, which publisher? Morrow. William Morrow gave the book. To, I even know the editor, because he wore a ponytail around New York. Who was the editor? Uh, Paul something. <laughs> he, gave, he gave the proposal to Kevin Randall. Kevin Randall sees MJ-12 and goes ballistic and says, this can't be true. This thing, this thing is a fake. When the next proposal comes out, of course... Corso read the proposal and said, I was never an MJ-12. Who put this in? So he said, oh, the well, movie did you company. Write, did you write the proposal? I wrote the proposal. Okay. And then they added MJ-12 and it went out. And then Corso said, take well, it out. Well, you wouldn't have even known what MJ-12 was if they added it. I knew what it was because I knew the book when it came out. Oh, because of Chandra. Because of, of Jamie Chandra, who was, right. who was a friend of ours. So I knew what MJ-12 was. And um, and that's him. That, here, here's the thing. That's Tim. a whole other story. Well, see, but here's the, let's, just, let's just do a segue because this segue is amazing. Um, uh, is that the is that the um, situation where that woman was in the room saying? Right, right. That was Jamie Chandray had a girlfriend of, whose name shall go unmentioned. Yeah. And we were working with her for a movie of the week for ABC for, which, for Showtime which, which, and ABC. Which company? This would have been with Viacom to do. Uh, this is when I had the office over um, on Highland, and. We were working with her to do a motion picture with Dan uh, to set it up at ABC. ABC was interested in this movie of the week. Yeah. And so we're having meetings at this office. What year was this, would you say? 94. It was right after Chandray had gotten the – it was after Chandray had obviously gotten the, um, the, uh, the role of film. And then he gave me his manuscript on the aviary, right? Wow. I don't think I have that. No, because I gave it back to him. Ah. So – he, he gives us this manuscript, and and, and, and and by the way, what now he's a mystery figure. What was he like, by the way? Uh, Tim, yeah, I'm, I'm interested just, yeah. in that. I'd like to know yeah. more about that because yeah. he was so mysterious. He, when I met him, when I met him, he was. I met him through his girlfriend. Okay, how old was he and stuff? He'd been a producer. Uh, I would say he was about. Five years older than I mean, he'd be around sixty six, sixty seven right now. I think. So when you met him, he was five years older than you were. Yeah. Well, I mean, did he seem like um, a completely legit, straight up? Oh guy? yeah, straight up, straight up guy. Very intense, very focused. Um, he was a tip. There are typical producers who work in this industry who are extraordinarily focused, who do nothing but produce, whose life is their work, and that was Jamie Chandra. So when you met Jamie, were you meeting him only because of his girlfriend? She said, you've got to meet my, she said, you've got to meet this producer because we were talking about doing projects together. And she said, you've got to meet my producer. Maybe you guys can work together. And when we met him, he said, here's a manuscript. And he tells me the story of MJ-12 and the film that wound up in his mailbox. Mm -hmm. Now, let, and me, so, let, let me jump in here and just ask, because there's a lot of people that think that he was probably mixed up with 
you know, the whole Bill Moore, Doty, CIA, all that stuff. Right, right, what right. Do you, do you, now, knowing what we know now with, with whatever, 20 years of retrospective on it or 10 years or whatever, what do you think? Well, he, well, before you say what you think, and although we're not going to name the girlfriend's name, I bet you, just, you know, reflecting on this now, I bet you a lot of that stuff might have come from the girlfriend. Well, she was Mossad. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, she worked She worked with Yuri Yeller at Mossad, and she said she worked for the CIA and that she was... Well, but see, here's the, here's the thing, Tim, and this is why I'll just, you know, um, and then Bill can kind of fill it in. The girlfriend, who was sort of a psychic type, mm-hmm. in, the, in the meeting, said to Bill... And this was oh yeah, well this is the big moment. This is the big reveal. Yeah, but I mean, so but and then you can kind of fill in who these people were and stuff. Sure. Uh, or and and what movie project it was. But the thing was, she said to Bill something along the lines of, "Well, they're in the room right now, and they're standing right behind you, and they're telling me that you're going to be the one disclosing information about their existence." This is UFA. There, she's saying she sees aliens. They're in the room, they're standing behind Bill, and they're telling her that Bill is going to be the one to disclose UFO information. Well, 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 and you know what? Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is wacky, but here's the thing. Um, so, so back up and tell me again, at least, and tell, tell whoever's listening. Tim, because <laughs> oh, it's we're telling and the world and the world. Okay, exactly, but tell, well, yes. What was the what was the project that the you? The whole are, world is listening. This what? is this is exactly kind of what I hoped for when we did the interview because this is really <laughs> what I yeah. think it would be like if we were all sitting around having exactly, and I didn't have to cook or clean up. <laughs> it's true, but no, but well, what was the project you were physically? I mean, what what? Why were you in that room together? Well, first of all, and we just, were. You know, was it was it? Um, can you say Dan Paulson? I can say Dan Paulson. Was it, was it Dan Paulson that was the... Well, Dan Paulson wasn't in the room, but Dan Paulson was the person we, okay. we were bringing projects to. Okay, Dan Paulson was one of the tremendous, you know, he's one of the many, many Hollywood guys that we were in uh, uh, partners with at various points in time, doing movies, making movies, getting movies made. So that was, and he's a legitimate, you know, straight up. But here's, the, so what project were but you guys... But the contact with this woman uh-huh. came not from Dan Paulson, but from Don Allen. Oh, that's irrelevant. No, well, no, it's not because Don Allen, Don Allen uh, had a company. Um, yeah, but it's not relevant. It's not relevant, but it was Don Allen who who put us together. We met in the office. Okay, but but so and why? She but met, actually, maybe it is relevant. Who knows? But but here's the thing: what project were you guys all talking about doing? Uh, this was the project. Remember the uh, the woman whose daughter was taken by this bicycle gang, and so she goes out and she's got this flaming red hair. She was over at the house. She was named Vicky something. Vicky, and she goes out and she becomes a motorcycle. A biker mom. Was that, that was Tim. That was a terrible. Again, see, this is the kind of stuff we normally would be dealing with. And the guy, her boyfriend, comes to our house. He was a sheriff. Yeah, he was a sheriff someplace in California. But these people come to your house, and this guy came to our house, and he had like an automatic. He rifle. had an AK-47 loaded, and said, "Let me show you my AK-47." And he's sitting in our house, right, with his <laughs> AK-47. This is not fun. Armed to the teeth, and he's uh, oh, he's and yet he's a really sweet guy. He introduces me to the number two guy in the Mexican mafia to do a book. Uh, the guy um, who was in the movie with yeah, uh, and see this as as a wife. This is the kind of stuff I try to put the cape. Bill Bill thinks this is exciting because Bill's just an ordinary writer who doesn't you know get out much. And as a wife, you put the kibosh on this stuff. You say, you know what? There's many a book out there. <laughs> yeah. Write about you know don't write about criminals, etc. And so this particular storyline that we're talking about all went to nowhere, and it kind of went to nowhere. It went nowhere because this was also during that awful era 
and it's happening again right now in the UFO world, this awful era of um, satanic ritual abuse. Well, that's what she said was going on with, with the camp. daughter, yeah. Yeah, so that was sort of like back in the day when um, kids, and of course it all comes about because parents suddenly had to go to, mothers and fathers had to go to work to support people, support their families, and mothers had to go to, had to join the workforce in force, and so as a result, our culture it was basically, you know, the, the, I think the mothers of the entire country as a, as a group were just, their hearts were breaking. Well, this whole, they've got our children in satanic rituals became a kind of a, a meme, you know, that Yeah, yeah, the whole thing with over. daycare centers and the... And That's the right, the McMartin case was the one that really brought exactly. the whole... Well, this is exactly... This, see, this is the sad thing. This is exactly the same thing. And again, in that pile of paper, this woman, this red-headed woman, had kept in her own way diaries and stuff like that and all this kind of stuff, and she left it all with us. And you kind of come to see, upon looking at this stuff, if you're not, um, if you're not going to let these people scare you, and um, if you don't buy into their insanity, because there really comes insanity. I mean, if you start reading this weird, st I don't know whether you've ever started reading like. Um, a really interesting book, Lavenda, Peter Lavenda. Yeah, I've read some of his stuff, yeah. Yeah, when you start to read that in the middle of the night, you can kind of begin to look around saying, my God, every, it's all a plot. Every, well, if you don't buy into that, if you try to stay objective and stay outside of it, and, you, and of course, looking back at this woman's paperwork 25 years later, um, you say, yeah, there really wasn't anything there. She was sad to be saying goodbye to her child, I think, every morning. Well, no, no. But, there was but, something there, but I think she made more of it, and, and the case she had against those people was thrown out of court, and she was angry, and the network couldn't get the validation it needed to corroborate her story. Yeah, but and then the other girl went crazy when it came time to make the deal with ABC, and her own lawyer told us, get out of this deal because you'll never make money. But here's the big point, though. Yeah. It was – she never came to me for that original story. When you say the other girl, you're talking about the girl who saw the aliens. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking about Shando's girlfriend now. Yeah, she came because she said that she had been kidnapped by intelligence agencies because she worked for Mossad and the CIA, and she was working with Yuri Geller, and that was the story she wanted to tell huh. about how she'd been so kidnapped. So she wanted to do her own story. She was doing her own story. And then she introduced me to Jamie Chandra, and Chandra told me all about UFOs and the, the MJ-12 and everything. So we're sitting in the office, and Jamie Chandra says, you know, Bill, I just figured this out. I said, what? He says, you're going to be the one. Jamie says this. You're going to be the oh. one to disclose the truth about UFOs. And, and so I said, wow. I, 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 it was like the scene from uh, that movie, uh, To Be or Not To Be. So this, I'm going to be the discloser, eh? I mean, it's one of those scenes, right? And I'm like, wow, that's great. I'm going to be the discloser. And, I, didn't and know Tim, he was, and I didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah, and Tim, like, write this down because you, you did say you want to talk about Bill's background. Ask Bill why he mentioned that movie, et cetera. And, and therein is the is a, is a story. So go so go on. <laughs> so he said, So I said I'm going to be this closer, eh? And then the and then the girl says, Oh yeah, that's what the aliens say. In fact, they're saying it right now in this room. And I go where where where? And of course, <laughs> the aliens were invisible, and they're in the room. And flash forward four years. We were at Roswell. Okay, anyway, to make a long story short, the deal for the movie The Week falls through. Um, Wait, which movie? The, the deal for the Vicky movie falls through. You know, the biker mom movie well, uh, so, falls but, through. But also the deal for the lady's story never came about, right? Well, that's what I'm saying. 
Her story never came about. The, the deal for the biker mom falls through. That, you know, that, you know, uh, the deal blows, basically. And the lawyers get really mad. ABC walks away. And Jamie Chandray is furious with me. Ah. So I'm seeing him at temple services, right? And I walk up, and I know he's right. mad, and I say, Jamie, you know, have a happy holiday. Actually, it wasn't a happy holiday. This, but, was, down, know, this was down in Hollywood. In that- this was in Hollywood. This yeah. was at the Performing Arts. So I see him. I shake his hand. The holiday is over. I get dismissive. You are now directed to return to me all my manuscripts and all my work product. Well, it's yeah. only the manuscripts, so I sent it back to him, and I've never heard from Jamie Chandray since, hmm. except we're at Roswell. Uh, do you, um, when you say you got a missive, was it a piece of paper? Was piece it, of paper. It was a formal but letter. You know what? You know what? With that paper exists someplace in that pile. Oh, sure it does. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, it would be fun to track that address and see if he's still there. I would happily do it. So we bump into Jamie Chandray. This is Corso goes to Roswell. This is part of the problem with the book, by the way. Corso goes to Roswell. The book is out, and he is like the rock star of ufology. And you can imagine, you can imagine, people have worked in ufology their entire lives. Along comes this old guy. And you. And And me. Yeah. Okay. They are furious. The knives come out. This is like going to be awful. So Corso's like the rock star, and I bump into Jamie and and his girlfriend. They, they were they were in Roswell. They were in Roswell. Well, where did you bump into them? What, what they... right in the milling around the Hangar 84, right wow. in that whole milling area. So I bumped That's into when, them. That's when when Whitley was there too. Yeah, Whitley was there in the room, right? And Paula Harris was there, and everybody. So, so but but do you think? Um... Wait, so I bump into them, right? And so I look at them, and I go, hey, Jamie. Hey, unnamed girlfriend. Hey, how are you? You said I was going to be the disclosure, and look, here we are. I have <laughs> never seen an angrier face than Jamie Chandra really? when I said that. Really? Now, why yeah. do you think he was angry? Just because? Yeah, well, I mean, he was furious. He was furious because of the whole deal that blew. That, oh, well, in, in other words, I thought you were coming in, you were innocent, you were naive, and, and, and look what happened, my girlfriend's movie of the week blew, and it was yeah, all your you, fault. And it wasn't my fault, it was the lawyer's yeah. fault. Yeah, but would you extrapolate that maybe he was hoping to be the guy making Yeah, that's what big... I was wondering. Yeah, I was wondering yeah. maybe if he thought he would be the discloser. I mean, well, what do you think? Do you think that? No, I think that he already, I mean, he already was a discloser. He'd already done all the disclosing he needed to do. Yeah, but it didn't make the same splash. It did not. And because that's it... only because it wasn't like, it wasn't 50 years. No well, offense. no, I'll tell you why it wasn't, the, it didn't make a splash. It came inside the UFO community. So, so Stanton wrote the book MJ12, Magic 12. That was great. Stanton actually Stanton disclosed wor- the story. Does Stanton work with Jamie? No, that story had made had gone around and around like a whole pinball machine. Yeah, but but, picking but, up yeah, stuff. but go back. Besides, you know, when that story happened, I only have, and I think just about everybody in their library, you only have that one book. I mean, Jamie never made a book. No, he never made a book. This manuscript never came out, and it was it was really on the aviary. It would it never was about no, MJ twelve. It was on the aviary. Yeah, but we all have that book called MJ twelve. It looks we like do. a Xerox thing. Yeah, right. we do. Yeah. Everybody does. The MJ-12 documents. So the Avery thing was a whole different book. That was a whole different book. But and he, of should have, he should have had a packager. He <laughs> should have. That's what he thought that I would be. But then when the deal collapsed with his girlfriend, he was so mad that he yanked the manuscript that it never really came out. Now it's basically everybody knows, right, Bruce Maccabee is Seagull. I mean, we all know that. Yeah, True. yeah, yeah. Now, True. so to, to, to sort of jump back a little bit, though, 
here now in retrospect, Jamie Shandro, what do you think? Was he mixed up with the with getting information? Obviously, he got information because they sent him the. I mean, do you think he's on the level? Yeah, basically. yeah. You know, was he, or do you think he was mixed up with the whole CIA disinformation, all that stuff? Or do you think he was making it all up out of Holcroft? He wasn't making it up because there were too many people who've like stepped up to acknowledge it was true. But according to what folks have told me from the inside, they filter information out, and it's disinformation, it's information with a little twist in it, um, so that they know where it's going. They filter it out because they love to permeate various communities with information. And in fact, people who look like upright, straight up, good all-American news correspondents, and I could name names, but I'm not, um, are basically on the payroll of the CIA pumping out stuff that they get. It's special access journalism. Well, they've always been. Like, there was a guy like Edward Elmer, somebody, like a really big guy. Remember that guy, the yeah. columnist? The very famous columnist was on the payroll. He was a New York guy. He'd always sit in clubs. Oh, Walter Winchell? Yeah. Yeah, of course. He was working with J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, so you think it's more just like they floated this stuff to him and then he went with it? Absolutely. They, they, they do that all but the okay, time. But, but look, has anybody looked up, I'm going to do it right now, Jamie Shandero on IMDb. What else has he done, I wonder? I'll go, I'll go look. I mean, I'll look at, look at um, Chris. I forget Chris's last name, who was the CBS producer who said he was going to do the big, um, uh, uh, the big exposure on UFOs and then said, oh, no, really, I can't, the big conference, then said, I can't do it because some guys in a van came, beat the crap out of me and <laughs> said, don't do it, so I'm not doing it. And he went, I mean, I remember him very well because I was friends with him as well. Don't know who that is. Well, here's a, here's a question that sort of ties into all this now. All right, so all this exploded pretty much. After everything died down, this is sort of a philosophical question, I guess you could say, and, and this is based on my five years of, of being in the UFO field. Why the hell would you stick around in this thing? You know, you guys got lives. You got other things going on. You, you hey, why? Believe me, if I could get out of the UFO field, uh, chances are I probably would. <laughs> For me, I wanted to work on a magazine so badly. Um, I can't tell you because I had my career started as a on a daily newspaper, so I have newspaper background and I loved it. And then I got married and had kids, and couldn't work on a daily paper. It's way too demanding, and etc. Yeah. And then I got involved with books in every way in every way you could get involved with books. Love books as well. Uh, started a company. On and on and on. Very successful actually in, in books. Yeah. And for me, strange as this sounds, there are only really three forms of communication back back in the day, print. Newspaper, which was daily, books, which were very much uh, every couple of years you come out with a book, or magazines. Magazines, to my mind, I was a magazine junkie. They were the absolute most demanding of forms because if you look at uh, a newspaper, pick up a newspaper, there's tons of typos in a newspaper. Yeah, yeah. If you And if you pick up a book, uh, less typos. But if you ever looked at the three forms, you'd say, I'm telling you right now, there are far fewer typos in a magazine than in a book or a newspaper. And I was, was, I was always fascinated by that, how, how fabulously magazines are put together. And then layout-wise, they're put together, there's so much more fun than a physical book page. Um, a, a newspaper page is a template. Everything just kind of falls, yeah, in, you exactly, know. And, yeah. and so for me, I always wanted to say, could I do it? And n nothing more than could I do it because it was sort of just a personal interest in my, of mine. Could I pull it off? Could I actually do a magazine? And when Bill got interviewed by um, the Eckers, 
they told him, they begged him to please find us a buyer. We want to get rid of this thing. We're, t we're burned out. We're tired of it. It's, and they were on, in the process of losing their house because of it. And when Bill came back from the interview and told me that, I, I, you know, I rolled up a newspaper and hit him with it and said, you've got to, you know, we've got to do this. We can all work together. We've got to take over the, you know, we've got to do this. We, we can solve their debt somehow. We'll make more money with this magazine. They will become whole and I will get the chance to work on a magazine. And he said, no way, no way. Uh-uh. We don't have that kind of money. And so he brought the magazine to the movie company that was handling the Corso stuff and the movie company bought it and the the Eckers were in glory. They had they had leased cars, they had offices, they had staff, they were happy campers for the next five years. And so that's but so but and and sadly, um they named Bill Publisher, the the company named Bill Publisher, with no money exchanged. Bill never got a dime, not even a finder's fee. And they named Bill Publisher. Just I don't know, because I don't even know why they did that. But the thing was that kind of kept us kind of connected. So Bill was invited to the meetings. And so in the very beginning, when the when the when the movie company first got the magazine, I tried to worm my way in to to get hired by the movie company to be part of the magazine. Yeah. And so I did some some covers to show them um how I would do a cover and you know I would try I I get Bill take it in and present it at the meetings and you know they they would have nothing because the guy didn't believe the owner didn't want nepotism. He didn't want he didn't want us all ganging up. He yeah, didn't yeah. like the fact the Eckers were married to start with. He didn't want another married couple involved. And, and then a little down the line, a little further down the line, the movie company guy called me in and interviewed me and said, I'm going to, you know, he was beginning to relent that he would call me in and maybe I could come and work. And because we were all friendly at parties and stuff, yeah. and I was always begging. And so <laughs> what happened was, you know, um, I went into the meeting and I thought, this was going to be great. I'm going to wow them. I'm going to tell them what I love about me. So we, I sat down across from this guy who's like Harry Potter or not Harry Potter, Mr. Potter, Mr. Potter in um, it's a it's a good life oh, yeah. or it's a wonderful it's a life. life. Yeah. <laughs> well, and so what happened was, and his, so he's he's you know he's a guy with a cigar and he's rich and he's sitting behind a big desk. He doesn't smoke. Well, whatever you know, but it's cosmically. <laughs> he, he, he's a cosmic. Well, I mean, I have you know you're you know yeah, but we're, think, we're setting the stage here. Have you ever heard of false light? Oh, well, so no cigar, but he's big desk, big desk. Okay. And he actually had a wine cellar there. He had a, he was a very rich guy. He is a very rich guy. In fact, now he owns a Napa thing. He owns a, a farm in Napa. But here's the thing. So he, I sat down across from him, and even though we had been friends at parties and stuff, I still sat down in the room across from him, a, a formal interview. Yeah. And he said, so tell me, you know, tell me about, you know, why I should hire you. And I started out by saying, well, I just love magazines. And, and, and it went downhill from there. It was <laughs> so bad and he wanted to hire me to be the advertising person he wanted me to get ads for the magazine which is a really bad news job yeah. it's not there's no glory you're not a reporter you're not you're not anything you're just you know trying to get ads and so and I and I started to cry because I was so frustrated I was so anxious to do it and and I was so insulted that you know it, and so he so I didn't so he absolutely lost all respect for me because here I'm now I'm crying <laughs> because I'm so embarrassed that I was so psyched because I'd brought, you know, like a, I was going to tell him what I would do with the magazine and all this kind of stuff. All, what I yeah, could and bring he kind of like pulled the rug out from under you there. Yeah, and it was, uh, and also I was mortified because I'm Bill's wife and I'm now, now making Bill look even worse. 
Um, and so then we kind of, th- th- then we kind of would not speak of this anymore. And so for the next, this was like maybe two or three more years passed. No, it was like six, six years passed. And I, you know, I just put it out of my mind. I literally did not follow the fortunes of the magazine, no matter what happened. And as the magazine began to become very, very shaky, I did not try to jump in anymore. I just literally just no way. Um, yeah. and, and I got very involved with eBay, actually, which was kind of cool. You know, and I, you know, I actually would have to give up an e- a good e- e- eBay job. So, so I forget why, where that was going because I didn't, you know. So. Well, the whole point was that the magazine then came back into your life yeah. six years later. But, what, but Tim, you had asked a question. What was the question? Well, I guess, I guess, kind of what you're saying. In a oh, sense, why are you in it? Yeah, why get mixed up in this well, UFO? Well, see, what happened was this whole thing originally started. But then, see, why we're in it? Why we're in it now was when um, Peter, the, the the wealthy man. Um, decided he'd had it. He he said he lost a million dollars trying to make a go of this. He then gave it. He he offered Bill and Vicky and Don the magazine for a dollar, mm-hmm. and so they took it. And 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 ironically, it, it, not connected to this because we did, we knew it was shaky, but we didn't know the inside story. We had invited Vicky and Don to our boat. We were living on a boat at the time um, for dinner. And the night before, this whole thing went down. And so, and I was at that point, as book packagers, I, the only book I was working on at that point was a UFO magazine encyclopedia. And so I was really in a, at a point in my life where, it's just a long story, there was a really big opening to do this. And so I convinced the Eckers, like, let's do this. Let's, let's put on a show. We can do this. Yeah. He's selling it for a And it was, that's how we got involved. And, and then it becomes like... We dumped fifteen thousand dollars in over the course of the first several months because uh, we had sold a house, our house, and um, at that point you're in. No yeah, offense. yeah. Well, once you're yeah. mixed up in UFOs, well, it's kind of well, hard to get out anyway. But then, in reality, what had happened was the specifics of that meeting with this person who had uh, purchased UFO magazine back in 1998 was that he didn't want to sell the magazine. He wanted to close it down. He said, I'm closing down them. See, we'd had offers to sell the magazine from the guy who was running that uh, Cinescape magazine, and um, he wouldn't sell it. He said that I'd lost too much money, and selling it wouldn't do anything. And so finally, he said, look, I'm just going to close the magazine down. He, there was never a point. There was never, there was never an issue of selling the magazine back in 2000. It was, I'm closing it down. Mm. Well, if he'd closed it down, mm. I mean, Don and Vicky were again in, in financial straits, and if he'd closed it down, that would have been it. There would have been no income. I would have spent six years uh, as the publisher emeritus of that magazine for nothing. And um, there were a whole bunch of lawsuits roiling up at the same time that were starting around 2000, 2001 with the partners of the magazine. It was really a mess. And so I'm just going to close it down. And so what I said at the meeting was, Who's going to take on all the debt from these subscribers? Because when you when you get a subscription to a magazine, what you are getting is a liability. You owe the subscriber X number of issues. Exactly, it's a loan. Yeah. And every time you publish an issue, you reduce the loan by the value of that particular magazine that subscriber gets. Right. You shut so it down I said, and you got to like prorate. Exactly. So I said, look at all this debt. What do you he says, well, you know, um, you know, the magazine goes bankrupt. That's it. So I said, well, why don't you let see? Because I knew that there would be no more income, and I was really thinking, well, you know, about everybody, about Nancy doing a magazine, about Don and Vicky not having any income. And I said, well, 
know, what do you want for it? You know, I said, I want the magazine. He says, well, and he said, what did he give me for it? I said, what do I give you for it? For God's sakes, the magazine is a million dollars in debt. What do you mean, what am I going to give you for it? He says, okay. And he, he was really getting mad at this conversation because he called me in to be friendly and say, you know, you're out of a job that I wasn't getting paid for. But anyway, <laughs> so he says, okay, fine. I'll give it to anybody who gives me a dollar. I took out a dollar and I put it on his desk. That's how I got the magazine. So then then we had the meeting with Don and Vicky to convince them, look, you guys can still make, you know, you guys can still be a part of this, you know? Yeah. Be, uh, uh, join us, be with yeah, us. But, 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 but Peter definitely said, I'm selling it to the five of you, and it was uh, Don, Vicky. That was when I, no, that's because I went back to Peter. Yeah. That's why that all happened. I went back to Peter and I said, okay, look, uh, in order to be fair, there are five people who should be involved in this magazine. And the fifth person, by the way, was a person who works for the magazine who would have been out of a job, too. Right. Yeah. So I went back and I said there should be five people. And he said, and he said to me, form your partnership. All of you come in uh, with my lawyer and um, you will and we'll work out a deal. And that's how the new version of the magazine came to be. And so that's what happened. And then it kind of devolved from there if you follow the story of, of uh, what's going <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah, that's but, a good yeah. word for it. This has got you written all over it. The Mets stayed in a Pittsburgh hotel that also hosted a convention of people dressed up as furry creatures. Oh, no. Is this Wilbon's worst nightmare? No, it's worse than my worst nightmare. My worst nightmare is mascots. <laughs> Look at that. But you know what? Mascots get paid. These people pay to stay in a hotel and, and look like animals? What, what are they let thinking, me, Bobby? All right, let me tell you something. This is what, here's, here's the real story here. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. In 40 years worth of being on the road, traveling around this great land of ours, checking into countless hotels of all stripes, here's what I've learned. There's a frightening amount of subcultures out there, Mike, <laughs> and they all have conventions. Yeah, but you've never and seen I these people. I to understand one thing. I've never seen them. Stay away from me. <laughs> Thank you very much. Let me let me talk a little bit about something that's been kind of annoying me in the last uh, six months or so. And being that you guys are in the thick of it in the UFO field, uh, you can probably identify with this. And that's just sort of like we all know about like the true believers, mm -hmm. okay? Who they know they already know what's going on. They they have no use for investigating. But but I've become a little more annoyed in the past few years now with what I've been calling in the past few months with what I've been calling like the true seekers, if you will, the people that seem to think that. Um, you know, searching for the UFO answer is part of this greater good. And so if you're if you're making any money off of this, that you're you're you know, you're part of the problem, quote unquote. Hmm. Or if if you're not adamant about the the search for the answer, if you're not you know, if you're not fully invested in this <laughs> then then you're not you know, then you're not worthy enough in their eyes. Do you get do you kinda of get what I'm saying? There's a certain Believe sort of me. attitude that's we have been the, we've been the targets of this. Well, the thing is, you could, we will we will get it from two different sides. On one hand, it's kind, we're kind of blameless when it comes to the magazine because, you know, you if you were running a conference or running a radio show or running a magazine, mostly even the true believers believe you gotta you gotta you know pay for electricity. Exactly. You know, by the by the, by the ink. Etc. So they would they'll let you do that, and of course you know I mean we're not no, none of us are rolling in dough here, because for me the love of making the magazine is is the that's the payoff. Yeah. And um, and of course I'm questioning my in my own way, personally I have um some high credentials, and I'm really um, cooties are coming upon me every single day by staying in this field, and so exactly, for me. Yeah. 
it's there there is that but for for bill there's a third thing because bill's the guy that everybody's pointing to saying you know he's the guy making money from the field because he wanders in and there's a best-selling book and now then 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 there's a tv show and of course people think bill's making a fortune and they don't know none of them know the reality of showbiz um, the people making a fortune, you don't know their names. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. The, yeah. The guy, the guy sitting, the guy in front of the, uh, you know, getting makeup put on, on for the camera isn't the guy making the money. And the same thing with the Corso thing. We ended up not being the ones making the money. The, the movie company made all the money, which is why Corso sued everybody. He was in such a fury. Um, it's like, what happened? Where's the money? And you know, it took forever to untangle all that and to try to get some money. And in fact, we ended up having to sue the company, uh, trying to get the money. Sadly, we didn't want to pay a lawyer. We couldn't afford a lawyer. We, we started out with a lawyer, and then eventually Bill represented himself before he became a lawyer, um, and that didn't go well. Let me get back to this thing but about the target. I mean, you know the, you know the story that um, remember when um, when David Garrison's newsletter came out, and he was, just as an example, he was using UFO Magazine, our who, logo. Who's David Garrison? The guy who does the UFO newsletter. Oh, uh, that was like he, a couple of years ago, right? Yeah. He inadvertently used UFO Magazine as kind of a trademark. Oh, right, right, right. right? And so I wrote David, and I said, look, um, you're going to get a uh, – he's a, he's a sweet guy. Oh, former I should have said who is – yeah, he's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. Yeah, but this took so, a long time. So um, I wrote him, and I said, look, you're, you're going to get a letter from the owner of the trademark for UFO Magazine. And I tried to explain in the letter – Okay, that when you have a trademark, and UFO Magazine is trademark, when you have a trademark, the burden is on you to defend that trademark. Absolutely, yeah, because if you don't, then if you don't once, then all of a sudden anybody can use it. It's exactly. Because it looks like you don't care and you don't, you don't right. care. It's, 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 it's kind of a version of, a, of, of adverse possession in real estate. So you must defend your trademark, okay? Under equity, you must, and under law, you must. So... I pointed out he was going to get a letter. So that really got a man. So he publishes the letter. So, so this one person writes me, right? This real obnoxious person writes me and says, are you in this for the money? If you are, I will smite you. you, know, you know, who are you, Ezekiel? I mean, well, you know, the archangel, Michael, are you smiting here? But I, 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 he got his letter. We became friends, and I said, you have to understand that for the money that, 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 that trademark people, and, and I've gotten trademarks, and it's money, that invest in their trademarks to know that, the, that when you don't defend it and somebody else occupies your territory, you, you, you've lost it, then that person can kick you off your trademarks. They have to defend it. And he said, oh, it was a mistake, I understand, and we became friends. But that's an example of, you mean you're being a business guy in UFOs? My God, it's a paradigm-changing event. The world will change, and you're making a buck? I will kill you for that. And that's the kind of stuff I get every single day. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's... Yeah, it, it, that's kind of what I'm talking about. The people who well, think Tim, that. Tim, how, how much are you at this point in, in after five years? Because you know they say that every seven years, every cell in your body changes. So every seven years, you tend to make changes in your life. <laughs> so you're in five years now. That's the same thing. I think I'm working towards six years. But how much are you in this now? Because it's 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 um, kind of fascinating. How? What do you mean? How much am I in it? Well, that's what I'm saying. Are you? Are when you say. Why are you in it, and why you know? Oh, okay. Well, I guess my attitude is just sort of like I enjoy doing the show, and I am in, in, intrigued by the UFO mystery. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to give my life to this thing, and I'm not going to be a martyr for these people who are, like I call them, the true seekers. Mm -hmm. 
who it's okay for them to have a wife and kids and a normal job. That's right. Because they sit on the internet and listen to the show or post on message boards right. and blogs. This is, their, this is their hobby. Right. They expect me, in turn, to be a martyr for them and to give up my life for the greater good, which is the paradigm-shifting cause, like Bill just said. And, yeah, but, and so, but also, listen to this. This is, I think, you ought to put this in your in – your, uh, <coughs> I don't know, think about it at least. Um, Nick Redfern wrote an article a while ago, and it was populated it – it's, it's on the Internet, and it's also in the magazine. It was one of his columns, and it's brilliant. And he says um, – Sadly, if it ever turns out that there really are UFOs and everybody knows it and it's, we all find out about it, yeah. the last people that they're ever going to deal with are, are us. Exactly. You know, it's Michio Kaku is the first guy getting the phone call. Right, and I kind you of know. try to have the attitude, like Bill said, it's a bar fight in a bubble. I try to stay out of the bubble altogether I know because you do. I don't want to get mixed up with all this infighting and all these people who – are mad at each other. I try to stay above the fray. Because well, he, I don't but here's the thing, and, and I, I, and you, when you said the other day that, um, I, that you do not engage, and I, I've, I've been trying to keep that, I've been trying to take that to heart, and, and I have to balance that with, person, you know, coming from a Catholic school background, when people are saying <laughs> lies. I get really mad at the lies when the lies um, get a life of their own. When you don't, when the when the person being lied about doesn't answer, then the lies stand there. And how do you handle that? I mean, when people like if people said to you right now that you're doing something illegal or rotten to keep your like they're, like they're they're going to say that you're doing payola or something that's, that's illegal to make yourself popular because now you know you just got the Zorgi award the um oscars of of and yeah, so that in a buck 50 you'll get me a cup of coffee that's right but still not at starbucks <laughs> yeah but the people who didn't get the award could easily look at uh, paratopia they could just come after you and say look you know i guess what i'm saying is if uh, and that and that's a joke that's all a joke joke ex, um, ex, example. In our case, it's not a joke because we're being accused of doing a lot of stuff that I really feel I, I need to speak up about. Because, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so for me, it's more like, and because I'm female, I feel like it's, it, I don't, I don't, I really don't know what to do. I love the concept of I don't engage because quite frankly, when you don't engage, the bullies go away. They take their ball and they go, or they, you know, they take their bat and they go beat somebody else up. Um, that's one. On the other hand, I think to myself, you know, no offense, I've got to stand up. I've got to, you know, yeah, I've got no, to. I mean, so I'm, I'm really torn. By, I'm literally very torn by it, um, particularly nowadays. Um, once UFO hunter, I mean, it was, it, it, we, we came to the field as enemies to start with, so I, I was aware of that. And it, and since it was a book, and since we've done many books since. You're able to leave it a little bit, and you're able to say, "What a what a group of losers!" And you can walk away and say, "I'd rather worry about you know I've done um, I, I had to fight the world in the world of novels, literary novels. Uh, that's not an easy world either, and so I could put my efforts there. But in the case of um, the magazine, it's very different because I'm in it, you know, on a constant basis. Yeah, and also I want to make friends, and I want legitimate people to want to publish in the magazine, and I don't want legitimate people to buy the lies that are being said about us. Um, yeah, yeah, you guys are in a different scenario, yeah. I guess you could say, than I am. At least the. But I hate, I hate. See, part of the problem is the losers who were saying this bad stuff in many cases because of the TV show are real losers. And I'm not going to name any names. I'm not going to cause any trouble here. But they are real losers. And I feel sorry for them on one level. And I know that if I were to say the truth about what really went on behind the scenes, 
it could be very destructive to their egos because they're lying and saying they're bigger and better than they are. And when you really like pull away the um, curtain and say, look at, I mean, you know, this, you know, these, these are losers. They're doing terrible things and they're lying to, to puff themselves up. I, I don't want to destroy people. I'd right. rather, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to really hurt them. But yet they're, but yet they're kicking us constantly because they think, you know, oh, Bill's on television. He can take it, you know. And, and on one hand, on the other hand, when you're a public figure, when you, if you're stupid enough to go on a TV show, then you're going to have to sit there and take all the crap about, you know, you, why are you wearing the sunglasses and you're yeah, so yeah, old. Yeah. And, you know, you got to do that. You've got to take all that. But it's just when somebody accuses you of a crime or, you know, literally crimes and stuff that you really yeah. kind of have to Well, you know, uh, to a point. One of the people who's still on the internet um, <clears throat> 13 years ago accused me of murdering Phil Corso no, no. for that money. No, no, that person, no, you know what? That person, I did, um, you know, when that all happened, um, this was back uh, in 97, you can imagine the state of the internet. Well, no, there wasn't any internet then, was there? there yes, was a, it, was. it was. Yeah, it was in its stages. It was 94. Okay, so yeah, by 97 there was an internet enough that there was AOL stuff, right? Yeah. It was CompuServe, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Prodigy, and, that kind of thing. Yeah, and so there was, um, and in fact you could still go there. There was this really cool site, and it wasn't called UFO Mind, but it might have been UFO Mind. It was like a plain blue background. Yeah, Blue Resident, yeah. Well, that was the name of the guy, Blue Resident Human. Now, here's the cool thing. Out of curiosity, I ever once in a while Google his name because he was so angry and so mean. And it was an, you know, I hate these people hiding behind fake names because it could be the guy, it could be your best friend mm -hmm. or it exactly. could be the guy next door to you or something. It's so frustrating because because these people enjoy joking on you like, yeah, I, you get your coffee from me every morning, but you don't know. Yeah. I hate, but anyway, so this guy, his name was Blue Resonant Human and he, um, he was the most vicious of all the people hating on Bill because of Corso. And it was really, really vicious. He wished him very, very ill. And it turns out, you know where I found him eventually? Where? There's a site called Arrowid, E-R-O-W-I-D, I think it's spelled. And it's all about, Arrowid is the drug site. And it's for every kind of drug on the planet. So if you want to research drugs of any kind, you know, not just pharmaceuticals, but um weird ayahuasca stuff and weird, yeah. weird stuff. Well, this guy became a guy, obviously a guy living in his car and stuff, but he, he became a guy practicing, um, you know, have you ever heard the concept of taking a heroic dose like Terrence McKenna would do of ayahuasca? Uh, you know, they're vaguely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, if you're going to take mushrooms or something, there are there are people who, who believe you could take a ton of it and really open up your mind and expand your horizons, and it's heroic if you know what you're doing, supposedly. Okay, okay, all right. In Terrence McKenna's case, very heroic. This guy... Because he died, basically. Well, he didn't die. He didn't mean to die. But, but here's the thing. And, in fact, he said... Uh, you would only die of awe. You would never die from the drug. He he felt it was safe. But anyway, this guy, Blue Resonant Human, decided to take heroic doses of crack cocaine. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And he is very, very damaged person, according to the, the era. And he's kind of a legend. He's kind of like, he's. I think he's, you know, I, th I don't think he's online much. Cause, but he would occasionally talk about, you know, like going on five or six day benders in somewhere in... Um, not Laurel Canyon, but around that vicinity, you know, going on these benders where he'd be, you know, and he would talk about the benders like, you know, he was seeing God, basically, and stuff. Yikes. You can imagine. So that's what happened to that guy, at least, according to, <laughs> or his avatar. Well, what happened was, 
Uh, but wait, but wait, but wait. Yeah. I know we're running out of time. I, I do want to – this is too too interesting to pass up. I've got to tell you what I found on Jamie Shandera. Okay. This is too cool. There's only one thing he ever did, according to IMDb. Mm-hmm. Only one thing. Mm-hmm. And he was miscellaneous crew. And miscellaneous crew means in debt. Well, you go all the way down, it's a video. Okay. He, he, he held a video, other crew video. God knows what he, you know, a camera. Here's the thing. It's, it's a movie from 1975 called The Devil's Reign. Okay. Yeah. And the people in it, this is hilarious. This is 75. Some of the people in it, beside Ernest Borgnine, you know, you'd expect. Yeah. But uh, William Shatner, <laughs> I, Ida Lupino, John Travolta, Anton LaVey. Anton LaVey, wow. Yeah. And Diane, Diane LaVey. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that's pretty interesting. So you were dealing with somebody, let's just say, you know, he's only a camera guy. And but, Keenan, yeah. but nevertheless, I mean, Anton yeah. LaVey is a really important name in that particular field of yeah. you know what. Absolutely. But it's, it's so interesting that, Sh- that Shatner and Travolta are in this. It's called The Devil's Reign. I'm sure it's a cult film, I'm sure. It probably is. 75. Very it probably is. And, and, and 75 was right before the whole McMartin business began to explode. Oh, and yeah. And then um, I think the um, there was a tagline for what the... What the um, what the story is about? It, um, wait a second here. The tagline was interesting, and I'll, I'll find that in a second. Wait, it's not Satan beam me up. It is. No, no, no. It is. It literally is. Um, uh, the devil's reign. It's something about Satan. It is definitely Satan. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's here someplace. Yeah. So I guess the point I was just trying to make too, aside from the people that think that you shouldn't be making money, is just that whole kind of philosophical idea that you don't believe enough in a sense. It's it's, it's hard well, to sort well, that's it. wrong. Yeah, but, but in order to be a good researcher, you're going to have to spend a little money on it. Yeah, but the whole point wait, is wait, this. Wait, wait. Here's the plot. Yeah. A bunch of Satanists, a bunch of Satanists in the American rural landscape have terrible powers, which cause them to melt their victims. Great. So it's Scanners Six. Yeah. <laughs> but the no, the, the, this business about the true believers and the and the committed. This is what bothers me, because it's like the Taliban. And it's not the Taliban because it's a Muslim group. It is that there are fringe people on the fringe of a lot of things. Um, the radical religious right that believe that any minute we're going to have rapture and so no matter what you do to anybody else is irrelevant because you can be part of the rapture and they can be as vicious as vicious can be. The Taliban, Al-Qaeda, people who literally would kill their own because they feel that because they carry the Holy Spirit, they must be completely pure. So they would kill other people to purify themselves from this. And you see this in, in the Bible all the time. Well, it, 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 it exists in the field of UFOs, that people have to be so pure that they go on these basic attacks. It's like these Taliban attacks. They're witch hunters. And they have to Look what's going on right now. Um, it's happening with Dolan, and we're putting Dolan on the cover of this issue, the one I'm working on right now. Uh, it's because Dolan has been in, in conferences with people that uh, are, are are considered money grubbers. I mean, you know, exactly, and bad yeah, people. Yeah, that's kind of this 
the scenario I'm painting here. Yeah. Well, yeah, guilt, exactly. like, guilt by association. Guilt by association, and, and uh, because but, you're in but, a conference with somebody, suddenly you're not pure, and if you're not pure, we have to get you out of the field regardless of what you've done in the way of research. Right, and not only that, um, it's, it reminds me more of the McCarthy era. Well, who, that's exactly who, what it is. Yeah, who have you, who do you know, and have you, like, for example, I mean, Dolan does not want to say nasty things about people that he hardly knows in some cases. You know, and so he gets in trouble because he won't denounce them. Exactly. That's what happens to me all the time, too, where it's, you? It's, you know. Oh, yeah. And you're, yeah, you're always accused, Tim, always the same thing people accuse me of. And I believe we're in the same, we're in the, we, we have the same philosophy. We're, we're both accused of not calling people out. And, uh, like, you'll let people have their say, you know, um, which I think is very important. It sh people should go on the record, and they should not be called out. They should have their say. And I think um, making the record like you're doing, because that's what you're known for. You can go back through your archives and basically, in some cases here, the only um, – because I mean, one of the things I was raving about is like Ann Droffel. Um, you, I think you did like a three-part with her. Yeah. And the thing is, you can't get that anyplace. And it's very important to have this stuff, to stop this woman in the middle of what she's talking about and say, well, you know, let me tell you about me. And let me tell you why I think you're wrong. I mean, it's it's a waste of everybody's time. You want to hear that? I mean, she's going on the record. You want to hear what she has to say. And and then and then when she goes away, and you you know you still have the microphone for you to stand there and say what you think of her is very awful, I think, and very cowardly to to talk about somebody after they're off and unprofessional. Well, beyond. Totally. Totally. But 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 to give to give the devil his due, it is really gripping entertainment. Um, and it's just like, um, well, it's like, you know, the TV shows that you hate to admit you watch um, because, you know, you're watching people pull each other's weaves off um, because, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's good entertainment, but it's, but, and those are the people actually that should be, fingers should be pointed at because they're, they're, they're bringing down the discourse and um, they're bringing actual more entertainment where it shouldn't be. I mean, I believe what I'm doing is dull, dreary research. And I think that, that's got to be done, too. But in some cases, and you're right, in some cases, the dull and dreary research shines a light into a corner that would remain dark. Of course. And so in the case of Andruffo, the work that she did with the McDonald files and the penetration that she did into the story of McDonald and his wife and this whole business of how he was um, how he was pursued by the FBI. Right, and you guys had him on the show. And then we the did. Yeah. We had her on the show. She was fantastic. Well, here's yeah, the other thing, Tim. Did you, did you talk to Anne um, in and again? I'm sorry because I I did I did listen to I know I listened to the early ones. I don't think I listened to them all the way. Through. I didn't okay, listen to the last one. Did you? And I because time is really the essence. I know, and, yeah. and I meant to. But but did you talk to her about her latest book, the last book she did? The How to Stop an Alien Abduction one, or the no. reissue of Tahunga Canyon? No, 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 none of those. The one that she channeled. Oh, okay. Um, no, we didn't get into that. Yeah, see, and that's where I, I feel really guilty. I really I really like Anne. I think she's a wonderful uh, woman. And she really, uh, her her PR company, her, I think it's a PR company that for the book publisher, really pushed and pushed and pushed to please do this story. And it was, um, it had a part of it that just kind of freaked me out as a publisher. And it was, she was basically saying, it was very Christian fundamentalist. Um, talking about um, Islam versus Christianity, yeah. and I didn't want to go there. And that's and that's where you're kind of looking out for the best interest for your um, business. 
you know, yeah. with with um, with um, everybody is so uh, whipped up right now, and it just struck me as something that we couldn't handle the storm of it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I feel really guilty about that. But the, but the, but then people are paying us. People are buying our magazine for for the discretion that we are in fact choosing. And so, if Dolan's on the cover. It's because, first of all, um, the article is being written by by Al, who absolutely is a fan. And I was going to do a um, there's a there's a guy right now who's got stuff on the internet who's anti Dolan, and I was going to I was going to contemplate putting him in as a balance. But I read the stuff, and I just feel I don't know, and I won't go into why. But I ended up not not contacting him and stuff, partly because he seems a little unhinged. And it, and it's just like, you know, people are just taking out their knives for Dolan, and I didn't want to be – I just don't think Dolan deserves that. He doesn't. I mean, look, the guy did the research. The guy went through all the archives, yeah, but, but see, here's and the, he doesn't deserve the kind of criticism he's getting. You know, criticize the book. Yeah, don't being, criticize the man. But he's being criticized because, um, for example, Linda Moulton Howe wrote the, uh, the introduction, and I believe he used as part of his research, or he's friends with, a woman who, again, another channeler and. You know, Tim, how many channelers have you interviewed? Zero, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, there's only, there's certain, I kind of try to take a journalistic approach, and there's only so far you can go with that kind of story. Yeah, yeah, and exactly, but see, here's a case where, you know, you're doing Dolan, but then you have to, again, face channeling, and you have to ask yourself, and, you know, I know some very, very decent people who say, you know what, I'm not going to just... Um, say I know everything, and I and I think all channelers are crazy. I just you know, right, and I, right. yeah. See, I'm not on that opinion, so you know. Yeah, but in fact, one of our columnists, of course, Shri and Kira, um, she is a channeler, so she does write her column for the magazine. So um, yeah, they're they're two of the most decent people I've uh, that we work with. And, and the point is, and American, so you know, and yeah. so yeah, so what goes on behind the scenes is important. Yeah, but American history is replete with yeah. American presidents relying on channelers and mediums for advice. I mean, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Pierce, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, well, Oh, Heidi, Heidi and Spencer, right? Um, I just <laughs> seriously today, um, you get much more news on the internet. Heidi and it's called Spidey, the two of them together. Heidi fired her husband, and she's using an, an intuitive um, guy as her new agent because she's saying he's going to take her places. She feels she ha will have an edge. She actually says this. So there you go. Well, look at Ronald Reagan and um, and Joan Quigley. I mean, um, in Hollywood, the point is in Hollywood, it's impossible to make a movie and impossible to make a TV show. It's like a bumblebee. It's not supposed to fly. So you need every edge you can get. So when Joan Quigley contacted Nancy Reagan and said that she had looked at Ronald Reagan's chart and had she been advising Nancy, Reagan wouldn't have been where he was to cross paths with um, John Hinckley. Um, Nancy hired Joan Quigley. And from that point forward, Reagan would have these odd times when he'd fly and odd times to do stuff. And George Bush, the vice president, was appalled. But the fact is, Reagan had a very successful, at least in public, presidency and survived the awful Iran-Contra thing, which would have brought the whole ball of wax down in flames. Exactly. Yeah, Reagan's still he's, – he's one of those guys you'll see on a coin Sunday. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's got his own aircraft carrier. Exactly. So, And an airport and everything else. So, you know. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> what else should we? Is there anything else we should talk about? I know we got on out a while here. You guys got stuff to do. Yeah, we do. We're so. fine. One of the things that might be fun to talk about is why Bill liked the TV show so much. And when I said his, the reference to to be or not to be, Bill Bill comes from a show business family, which is pretty interesting. At the end of the day, um, 
he his parents tried to keep him from going into show business, and that's why he became a teacher, a college teacher, um, and that became his profession instead of show business. And so when finally, after all these years, show business came came calling, he loved it so much, sadly, uh, because then you get canceled, you know, and you're kind of like, you know, it's like, whoa, now what? But um, Bill's um, Bill's father was in, was in vaudeville. Um, had Bill when he was very, very well, not very, very old. My God, how old was your father when you were born? I want to say sixty, fifty-eight, sixty, yeah, 57. something like that. So, and now that, that doesn't seem so old, but uh, yeah, Bill. Bill's, not now <laughs> I know. That's what, well. So Bill's um, Bill's got two godparents, Jack Burns. Oh, I'm sorry, Jack Benny and George Burns, and our name is Burns. His name is Burns because the Burns, both Burns in show business, changed their Jewish names to not Jewish names. And that's what you did. Yeah, no, well, we, was, no, we didn't. It was kind of, you know, it's like um, by the time that I was born, my father had changed um, the family name. But, oh, okay. But, uh, but uh, his name was Kaplan, and George Burns' name was Birnbaum, Nathan Birnbaum. And the two of them, and the two of them, when they were little kids, um, we're talking eight, nine years old, and on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where they both lived, they would sing and dance, soft shoe dancing, at all the bars <laughs> downtown. That was how they made their money. They would dance and people would throw coins, and that's how they began. This is your dad and George Burns? This is my dad and George Burns. And so it was like Burns and Kaplan. Uh, it was like Birnbaum and Kaplan, Kaplan and Birnbaum. That was the act. But they also, this was, again, in the very early 1900s, they would, um, turn of the century, they would, New York City was heated by coal, and the company that supplied the coal was called Burns Brothers. Today it's an oil supplier, but back you know, 100, and some odd, 200, um, 100 years ago it was um, coal. And they would, and the kids on the Lower East Side tenements would run after the coal trucks because as the coal trucks would pull away from the chutes, Chunks of coal would fall out, yeah. and they'd be on the streets, so and the kids would follow. Well, my father and, and George Burns would wear their father's overcoats, these big, long overcoats, and stuff the coal in the deep pockets. And so the kids would look at them and say, oh, look, there go the Burns brothers because of the coal truck. <laughs> That's the name they took. They became the Burns brothers, and they were dancing, and that was the first vaudeville act that they had all the way back around 1915. That was the first vaudeville act, and then uh, they remained friends for the rest of their lives, the two of them, and um, and that's how we got our name. But my father never really officially he took the name Burns, just like George Burns did, and then when he became an agent in in, New, in first in California, in Los Angeles, then then in New York, in Manhattan. He changed the spelling of the name. The day before I was born, my uncle told him, "You better make it a legal change. This kid's not going to have not going to have the name Burns." They walked into City Hall. They went down. They changed the name. That's the only reason my name is Burns. Now, why is the George Burns spelled differently from the Bill Burns? Because my father changed the spelling to B I R N E S when he became an agent to differentiate the spelling from George Burns' spelling. Okay. That's the only reason George Burns and he said, look, we've got to change the spelling here if you're going to do it officially. 
because um, we don't want to be the Burns Brothers. My father said, fine, change the spelling of the name. And the spelling, by the way, has gone through eight or nine incarnations. There was B-I-R-N-S, B-Y-R-N-S, depending upon which marquee, which theater marquee you'd look at when he was on the bill with my mother. They were a vaudeville act together. Um, he would change the names. Passport had another name. So it was it's kind of interesting. Yeah, and, that, uh, is, that is weird. Interesting, yeah. And they brought, when Jack Benny was a young violin prodigy in Waukegan, Illinois, they brought him into vaudeville, and he changed his name from um, Benny Kabelski to Jack Benny. And that's how I got my middle name of Jack, was from Jack Benny. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that sad? I mean, it's sad because of the TV thing. <laughs> well, it, it, it is sad because they said you can never be in showbiz, you can never be in Hollywood. Ever, ever, ever. So I literally followed their instructions. I became yeah because a, they didn't want that life for you. They didn't want the life. I became a doctor, a lawyer, and then finally in Dulce, when we were in the Dulce, New Mexico, I did something for the tribe. They made me an Indian chief. I was just a doctor, say. lawyer, and Indian chief. <laughs> and you guys were in the uh, the the Rock movie there recently, huh? We were in the movie with uh, Dwayne Johnson, uh, Race to Witch Mountain. That was funny. Yeah, that was fun. What was that, that experience was, like? Well, first of all, Dwayne Johnson. Well, Andy Thickman, who is the director, is a subscriber. We've known him for years. He's a really sweet guy. And Andy Thickman was actually born in Roswell. Oh, wow. And so he grew up with the whole Roswell myth. So when the time came to do race to do the um, remake of Witch Mountain, he wanted to give it a UFO spin. But none of the cast... Dwayne Johnson, Dwayne, Carla, Gary Marshall, who actually played me. None of them. Well, he played uh, um, He played a, a version. played Art Bell, right. Or Tim Beckley. Uh, none of them had any, you know, even, even interest in UFOs, yeah. right? So what Andy Fickman did was he got, now remember, Disney owns History Channel. So what Andy Fickman did was he got all the DVDs from the episodes and played it for the cast. So after the DVDs were running, and there were certain episodes, I think Bent Waters was the key episode, right? Yeah. So they're watching the RAF Bent Waters episode. Dwayne Johnson supposedly stands up and says, my God, we got to tell the people about this. They're here. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, cool. And so you must have been, you must have met all these folks then. We did, we did. And Dwayne Dwayne was really a sweetheart. He would we have some great photographs of him, but he would walk over and he'd say, yeah, he's he's huge. Yeah. I mean, he's really big. So he'd walk over, bent over. He'd say, are, are you too happy? Are, are you too being treated right? You better be treated right. You tell me anything you need. You 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 come right to me. You wait till I finish my scene. You come to me and say, Dwayne, I need this and I'll get it for you. So what happened was. He was instrumental. We were with the extras, right? We're just milling around with the extras. He said, these guys, the UFO group was Nancy, myself, Willie Streber, George um, Sukalos, uh, Roger Lear. He said, you guys, you, you should really get a better deal. So he bumps us up to the SAG group. Oh, God, that was so good. <laughs> Oh wow! No, but here's why. The um, it was the food was you would not believe the food. My goodness, every single solitary meal, it was gourmet. I mean, it really, really was. I mean, you wouldn't, you would. I mean, you you would just dream of this. And when they opened the lids, you never knew what was underneath in there, and it was so good. Wow. 
When, yeah, that was that was the upper group. The uh, the underneath yeah. group had okay stuff. Well, when we were doing and they had fr they were squeezing orange juice for you. That's right. That's right. If you wanted our fresh orange juice, hey, go and get it squeezed. You want to? We'll, yeah. we'll make this. We'll and make this that. Is, this is for the extras. Disney. Yeah. The the cast had their own private chef caterer. Oh wow. And their, and, and their own kitchen. And when I think of UFO hunters, our craft was a jar of Skippy inside a cooler <laughs> with Kool-Aid. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, just like, you know, take that to the people who are out there who think that you guys are, like, living high, high in the hall and making UFO hunters and, and everything else. It's like, you know, they don't really yeah. know. How they uh, they don't, and 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 they get mad, and and these are people that even folks we had on the show. First of all, there were so many budget issues that if somebody wanted to be on the show, and I would get these letters from people, I'll do anything to be on the show. People in the field, I'll yeah. do anything to be on the show. I will, I will just, Bill, I'm serious. I want to be on the show. And I actually went to, um, well, you know John Greenwald, and I actually yeah. went to John, and I said, please get this guy on the show, okay? Do me a favor. He's great. He could do the work. He did do all the science. So, so John went to his boss, uh, who was the who was who was the senior producer, and said, um, "We want to fly so and so from the East Coast for the, for this scene." And the producer said, "No way, you're flying him from the East Coast. We don't have the money for travel. We're not going to fly anybody." And you find a person who'll work for nothing. And exactly. we were like scathed. That person turned out to be so furious, blaming me that he's not on the show. Yeah, that's the that's something that I've talked to with other people too, in the sense that like. In these situations, they always want somebody that will come for free, and, and so the people that are trying to make a living in this end up being the ones who kind of get fucked out of the income. And here's another case where somebody was on the show, uh, or was interviewed, and uh, he's a mutual, you know, you know him, and um, basically, according to folks, did a good job, and he never made it into the final cut. Maybe he's furious to this day because does make a lot of noise about it, and it was such a technical thing. This was in the McDonald Files episode with Andruffel. Yeah. Each of the hunters had a different McDonald file to follow. That was the whole point in, in season two was each of us, Pat had one, Ted had one, I had one, each following a different aspect of a case. Mm -hmm. Pat's was Lonnie Zamora, who, by the way, that's going to be in this issue with UFO Magazine. Pat did the Lonnie Zamora story. Okay, I was doing the story. Uh, um, I forget which one it was. Oh, it was the Heflin photos. Okay, and uh, Ted was doing RB forty seven. But the day that Ted was supposed to, uh, Ted had his own business. He just had a baby, and flying from the East Coast, as I now come to see, I, I didn't really appreciate what Ted went through in season two, but flying from the East Coast, flying from Boston, is a nightmare, because we had a deal with Southwest Airlines, and Southwest Airlines, oh, look, there's a drop of rain, your flight's canceled. Yeah. And so if a flight's canceled in Boston, because the flight didn't get in from Florida, and they don't fly to Logan. They didn't fly to Logan, and they flew out of Manchester. Yeah. So I mean, it was in a, so 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 you can't make the connecting flight at Midway, or the connecting flight at Sky Harbor, or the connecting flight at McCarran in Las Vegas. So you're stuck, right? So they can't do the scene. Well, that's what happened in this one instance. We're in California, and um, sure enough, so the producer did the interview, and when the time came, when when they were in edit again, this is out of my hands. I'm not the editor of the show. 
when it came down, they said, oh, well, who was interviewing him from the cast? And they said, well, nobody. You know, Ted wasn't here, so we just did the interviews. We can't have this because the whole format of the show is experts are interviewed by the Hunter cast. Yeah. They're not on camera alone. Bingo, it's cut. Wasn't my fault. It was the it was an editorial decision based on something had to fit into the existing format of the show to get through the network editors who were higher than our own editors. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm pointedly not saying asking who was it Good. the way we were earlier. Yeah, because you know the people we mentioned earlier, you know the Shanderers and stuff. Uh, really aren't in the field. These people are all in the field, and they are they they are you know sharpening their their buoys. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. you know, you you just can't do anything about those people, I guess. You know, like I said, I, I try not to engage them. You guys are higher profile than me, so you get you get you know ten times more shit. Well, like I I've said, you know, to the the analogy I make is, you know, I'm from Boston, so. Everybody around here thinks they can be the general manager of the Boston Red Sox, but yeah. they have no especially now. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then they, they and then they have no idea really, you know, what what's going on behind the scenes. The game that we're all involved here in is trying to find some information out, and I think it's an important game, actually. Um, I think it's a worthwhile way to make a living um, because we're trying to learn something. And in fact, um, you know, if I leave the field, it's going to be. Um, well, I don't know. Yeah, that 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 doesn't have any ending there, because <laughs> you know I I you know I, I can't predict that. But I know that right now I did get burned out once so far, and I pulled myself back in. I pulled myself. I I got unburned out by by kind of avoiding everything for a while. Yeah, that's kind of how I just deal with the whole thing. And and earlier you yeah. said you know how how deep are you into this and everything, and it's just sort of like like I've often said on this show when I appear on other shows, you know, once I'm done with my show. Yeah. Or when I'm working for Coast to Coast or whatever. Once once I walk away from the computer, that's it. I walk away. Yeah, you do other. I mean, you, you do other. I mean, that's why when in the summer we have such a ball with. I mean, I wish I liked Lost. I truly do, because you guys right now are having the fun of liking it, and I loved X Files. But I didn't get hooked. We didn't have television when Lost first came on, and I didn't get hooked. And I'm telling you, I'm too lo I'm too lost to watch Lost. <laughs> you know, and I wish that weren't the case. And so I'm trying to rectify that by getting involved with um, Housewives of New York and stuff like that, something. You know, I love having something to look forward to. Right. Every year on our show we do a baseball episode, and, and it'll have just come out recently now with Rich Dolan and Lauren Coleman and Greg Bishop. And, you know, the point of that whole thing that I stress every year is, like, to the audience is you got to have some kind of other interest, folks. Yes. you got to yeah. be able to walk away from this because if, you, if this is your life 24-7, you're just going to be angry – and and frustrated. Well, you you'll go crazy. I mean, you really will go crazy. There is a mental health issue going on here. Yeah. Um, and in fact, what I, I mean, I, I try. I I have so much work to do that my my uh, fun has to be quick, and I have to keep my hand in. And one thing I I, I was um, I've been telling Jeremy. I'm I'm sort of friends with Jeremy outside of the show as well. You know, outside of the um, the biz as well. And yeah. and um, he knows that one of my side interests. It's crazy. It's this weirdo, weirdo conspiracy stuff, um, but but weird, deep conspiracy stuff. Um, really cool, interesting stuff. Like, you know, every little scene in a movie means something. Because if there's a checkerboard floor, it means it's like Illuminati. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. And I'm always happy playing around with that world because I hardly ever run into the same names. And you always, you know, it's always a, a dose of reality when you think you're escaping and playing and having fun, and then suddenly you see somebody's name in that field that, you know, is in your, 
you know so so it's a it's an interesting side thing you know and i and that's actually kind of it refreshes the palate a little bit but i can kind of keep my hands in a little bit too absolutely yeah yeah so there's that Obviously, ufomag.com is the website, and UFO Magazine keeps plugging away. Um, mm -hmm. It sounds like, Bill, you're shopping around some show ideas and stuff. So what, what do you guys have on, on the, oh, in, the, in the pipeline big. for you? Something, well, something big, big on, on, on both sides. So Nancy can talk about the magazine first. No, 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 it's the radio show. That's what I was going to say. You talk about the radio show and the magazine, because okay. you're going to be on, we're going to be on radio starting March 20th. Well, we'll, see, we'll see, because I'm kind of on the shy side, I thought, and so <laughs> I, didn't want, I didn't want to be part of the radio thing, but yeah, we're going to, I mean, Bill's going to do a radio show just because he really wants to, but there's the, and I'm going to probably be part of it too. Turns out I have more to say than I thought. I did. And, you know, so. Well, I like the so, dynamic between you guys, because Nancy's not afraid to correct you, Bill. When <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Nancy's, Nancy's never afraid to correct well, see, me. They never correct me in the morning. Never correct me in the night. Yeah, but here's the thing. The I've listened to Bill on radio shows a lot, and he gets a lot of criticism, and, and some of it I think is very, very deserved because he goes off on a tangent. He'll say something like, he'll say something like, the most important thing that you could ever learn is, and then I'll go off on this enormous tan tangent, knowing that you're just waiting for him to say, what was the rest of the sentence? Regarding? You know, and it's just it, when we are at dinner and we're out with friends and hanging around, it's fun because we always do pull each other back in on the topic. So I think that might make a fun um, show. And then ironically, Bill's parents had that kind of show actually. You know, so it's a kind of weird historical big circle that goes around. But um, it, we're, that's starting March um, 20th. March 20th, yeah. March 20th, and um, I, I think it's Clark Radio no, no, overnight no. AM. No, no, no. It's, um, yeah. Well, yeah, it's Clark Radio is, is, is the name of the network on overnight AM. But you can look up, Lan it, the fellow's name is Lan Lamphere, who's going to be kind of hosting us, and we're still in the process, we don't know the ins and outs of this yet. We're still in the process of figuring out how we're going to make the archives available because it's he he runs a daily uh, show you know like a show every night and it's yeah. live and it's streamlink and stuff but for our little audience uh if you're not archived then you don't exist i mean you have to be archived yeah yeah and so it we're only going to be on yeah I, it has to be because it's again it's a record we will be interviewing people that will only be on the show and have never been ever on a show before and you want that you want to be able to go back and refer to that so I'm looking into right now, I've got a server, so I'll be putting, and that's why I want to talk to you about technical, I'll be, we'll be putting the stuff up, making the archives available with, um, you know, it's once a week, so it's not, it shouldn't be too big a deal. Yeah. And, um, it's in, and because we've been book packagers for 27 years, I think 27 years now, it's, it's over 25 years, and we have a lot of stuff. Oh, besides, sure. Yeah. Besides UFOs, so so it's not going to be just UFOs, which is why you know I feel a little guilty, you know, talking about it on your show. But oh, don't worry about it. I'm the least competitive person in that regard. So <laughs> well, yeah, that. which is very healthy, very healthy. And, uh, and besides, the competition is such. Uh, all you have to do if you're competitive is just show up for work every day. Uh, try try that. You know, uh, that's that's the hardest job of all. And so, you know, the world needs people. To the world needs more voices and more 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 magazines. I think. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all I'm right. All so you got the radio show coming up on uh, UFO Mag is obviously, like I said, still plugging away and it's doing well. Well, the big news that Nancy's working on right now is UFO E Mag. 
Oh, nice. Well, yeah. Well, see, here's the thing, and just real quickly, I'm a Mac, Macintosh fiend, and I believe, and, and you can quote me, I believe this new thing, this iPad, is going to change everybody's life. And I'm making a version of the magazine for the iPad. I have to because it's too, it's, it's what I want to carry around with me. It's where I want to read. And eventually, it's where magazines are going to go, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Print is print is print is dying like a bad actor on a stage, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's you guys are going in the digital route with UFO magazine. Well, it, well, we are already, of course, with PDFs and stuff. But that's not that's not what anybody wants. At the end of the day, you don't want to just, um, you know, flip pages, pretend pages. That's not the way it's going. So I'm designing something entirely different. That's you know, so and and that'll be available on the iPad and in the iPhone. But I'm too old to really read on the iPhone. I, I, it's got to be bigger, so, and that's the other thing, you know. So I'd say to you, if you want to be tech, if you want to look at the future, you know, look at this iPad thing when it comes out. It comes out April third, and I'm physically, uh, I'm standing in line. <laughs> it's 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 gonna be very exciting. And and the other thing is, yes, we are pitching uh, UFO hunters to other networks as the UFO Hunters show, ideally with Pat and Ted and Kevin, if we can do it for, uh, make it a foursome, we'll see. And there are some other shows that we're working on. I'm actually writing up the character sets for the reality shows this weekend. So ideally within a few weeks, we'll be at various cable companies, uh, uh, production companies uh, in New York uh, doing some pitching. So we'll see what happens. Awesome. Awesome. Sounds great. Well, I can't thank you enough, guys, for coming on the show. I had a lot of fun. I felt like I didn't have much to say because <laughs> you guys let, just sort of ran with it. Nancy, you should be an interviewer. You were <laughs> well, that's, you're really that's, holding that's, Bill's feet to the fire there a few times. So yeah, well, that that was my first job. So that's, that's my that's thank you. <laughs> well, it was just great to to get a chance to have you both on the show here and and to give people sort of like I said an experience of of what it would be like if we were all just kind of hanging around, which is really what what this interview was. So I hope folks enjoyed it, and I think they did, and, and hopefully. Uh, you know, they check out all this stuff that you guys have going on. Cool. Thank you. And thus concludes our interview here with Bill and Nancy Burns. Big, huge thanks to them for coming on the show and for indulging me on the Dinner with the Burns concept. I think it worked out really well. I think it gave folks a real taste of what Future Theater, their podcast, is all about. I hope folks go and check that out. You can find out more Info on that at the website, www.futuretheater.com, all one word, futuretheater.com. And, of course, you want to check out the website, ufomag.com, for all the latest on UFO Magazine, UFO Hunters, and all the stuff that Bill and Nancy Burns have brewing. Going to make the quick transition here now into our post-show bonus interview, little stop and chat with Micah A. Hanks. Let me give you a little information on Micah A. Hanks for those folks who have not heard him on the program before. He was on BOA Audio way back on April 13th, 2009, during BOA Audio Season 4. Here is his bio. Micah A. Hanks has researched all things strange since a very young age, beginning when he was still in grade school. Since that tender age of discovery, he has grown to work towards documenting the world's bizarre mysteries, having contributed articles and stories to Fate Magazine, Fortean Times, Mysteries Magazine, UFO Magazine, and others. He's also had the pleasure of working with the Travel Channel for their Weird Travels television program, as well as the History Channel's Guts and Bolts during investigations as an investigator with the Lemur Paranormal Research Team. His adventures have taken him to all kinds of amazing places, from snow-capped mountaintops in the middle of July, hiking through the Rockies of Montana in search of Bigfoot, 
to a haunted 19th century jail in historic Charleston, South Carolina. He studied martial arts in Chicago with practitioners who performed the ancient art of the death touch. And while he was there, he also visited Resurrection Cemetery, famous location of Resurrection Mary, one of America's most enduring hauntings. He trudged through the mountains of Cherokee, North Carolina, in search of Bujums, and what Cherokee natives described to him as the Woolly Ones, stomped through the foothills of Tennessee in search of the southern skunk ape, and struck the hills in the heart of Amish country in search of Ohio's grass man. He's got a new book out called Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule. That's what you're going to be hearing about here in our Stop and Chat. Micah A. Hanks' website is www.gorillianreport.com. Let me spell that one for you because it's a bit confusing. G-R-A-L-I-E-N report.com. Once again, G-R-A-L-I-E-N report.com. Check it out. And without any further ado, let's roll into the interview here. Micah A. Hanks talking about his new book, Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, in a post-show stop and chat on BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a special treat here for you this week, a little stop and chat from our old friend Micah A. Hanks. Many of you heard him last season on BOA Audio. If you haven't heard him on the show before, go back and check out that BOA Audio episode after you've heard the stop and chat from Micah. He's hanging out here at the end of the show. It's kind of like an after-hours session here on the program, so loosen your tie, folks, and, uh, you know, smoke them if you got them. Now that the bulk part of the show's over, we're going to chill out here a little bit here with Micah. And I'm really excited because he has this book that has just come out, Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, and I can't read... Oh, wait, here it is, right here, yeah. The Search for Sentient Intelligence from Other Worlds, and it's really just been released, you know, in the last three weeks or so. So, I mean, it's super fresh, and very exciting, and I'm hoping to get my hands on it soon, but instead of waiting, you know, because then I have to order it, and then I have to read it, and then I have to schedule the interview, and that could take that could take a while, folks. I mean, I got a lot going on. Micah has a lot going on, so I want to get him on the show here at the end of the program to talk about this book and get the word out to the BOA Audio listeners so they can place their orders as soon as possible. So, Micah, welcome back to BOA Audio, longtime friend of the program, anytime we have the opportunity to speak with you. It's always a pleasure. Welcome back, buddy. Oh, gosh, I tell you, well, the pleasure is all mine, as you know, and Tim, oh, gosh, I tell you, these uh, introductions you give just keep getting better and better. And I don't even practice them. That's the truth. I really don't, so. <laughs> uh, you're just that good, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just that caring. I just care that much about my guests. They become friends, and that's that's how I kind of try to do the show, you know. By the time we're done with the interview, I hope we're buddies. That's kind of my attitude with every guest, so. We are certainly that, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. You are the original scallywag, as they say. <laughs> oh, I turned it around on you there, didn't you I? You did, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's my nickname for Joshua Warren is scallywag. Yeah. That's right. We dropped it on him during the interview earlier this season, so uh, <laughs> we figured we'll bring it all together again like an episode of Lost. Um, <laughs> so uh, tell me about this book. How did it come together and, and you know, well, what's it all about? I'm very intrigued by this because you've got seemingly two 
conflicting sort of ideas in a way, the magic, the mysticism, and the molecule. It's like, whoa, this is science, this is the occult, this is, you know, what's going on with this book? Well, you know, the way I feel about science in general is that uh, all things that appear supernatural to us, to humankind, eventually, if we were able to take on some kind of a fundamental understanding of their inner workings, it would become natural. I mean, you know, all things were this at, at some point, you know, all things observable in nature. And that's what science really is all about, is just the, uh, the, the process of taking the observable environment around us bringing those things to terms kind of on a mechanical level so that we can better understand and, you know, in a technological sense, manipulate those things. So, you know, the, the book Magic Mysticism and the Molecule deals with uh, what I guess have been called variously spiritual technologies. Um, and, of course, you know, the, the kind of primary focus of the book is altered states of consciousness. And how, it's not a how-to book, I'm going to go ahead and put that out there, uh, first and foremost, it's not a how-to book, but it is a book that looks, um, you know, I guess in kind of a scholarly way, at uh, the way that magical practices and then mystical arts and things like that, and then also uh, physical uh, entheogens and, uh, and quote-unquote molecules that are able to elicit psychoactive effects have been used over time to elicit altered states of consciousness by different cultures. And it's fascinating to me the way that once I got really into the nitty-gritty and, and began digging into the uh, subject matter that, that ended up becoming this book, that when, you know, no matter what the quote-unquote method of entry is that, that a, a person for a religious purpose or, or anything else for that matter has used uh, something such as a magical tool or a mystical practice or an entheogenic molecule to enter an altered state, the, uh, there are parallels, and it's something experiential about the human condition, so to speak, that all these experiences tend to kind of relate to one another. Now, granted, I know that there's got to be some sort of a psychological, archetypical thing that's involved, but by the same token, I think that there's also some sort of external um, capacity in which certain certain flavors of things come through in these kinds of circumstances, whether it be you have a very vivid dream or you have an out-of-body experience, uh, you know, something like sleep paralysis, or you use meditation to enter a very, very, very altered, enlightened kind of state of mind, or, you know, like many people in South America and even through the American Southwest have done with peyote and ayahuasca and things like that, mm -hmm. um, they've actually used, um, you know, entheogens, God-releasing plants, contain psychedelic molecules as part of their religious practice. All these kinds of things instigate some sort of a, a interaction with with what have very variously been called spirit intelligences, angels, aliens. I mean, my gosh, you know, you could you could go all day with your different list of classifications. But there is some sort of you know kind of a kind of a similarity between the experiences. That's what my book looks at, and uh, and I try to uh, try and tie together some of those parallels in the way that they relate to one another. Yeah, so like like we're talking about how they people sometimes use DMT and then they have weird interactions with weird creatures and stuff like the elf stories, that kind of thing. Right, absolutely. Yeah, Terence McKenna of course popularized that term uh, fractal elves and of course the, the elves didn't resemble you know, little like Peter Pan type characters or anything like that. I think he described them as self-dribbling basketballs. <laughs> you know, he also, he also called them tykes because he said it sounded like little kids kind of kind of talking in real high-pitched voices that sounded like they'd been you know recorded on a tape recorder and then sped up. So, 
you know, it's it's an interesting notion that there might be quote unquote beings that exist in a you know a DMT hyperspace like Terence McKenna and Dr. Rick Strassman and people have put out there, and that of course has become, uh, in in some ways, almost sadly, the, uh, the the primary focus of this book. You know, uh, so far as people you know who who've taken interest in it, who are reviewing and who ask me questions about it. You know, it's it's one piece of the pie, but uh, but you know, certainly I think that the use of entheogenic molecules to elicit an altered state of consciousness is going to be the most uh, avant-garde and, uh, and taboo, uh, you know, especially in Western society, um, in terms of, of three, uh, you know, techniques or, 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 you know, staples that are listed in the book. You know, the book is broken into three, you know, portions, each consisting of several chapters, and those are the magic, the mysticism, and the molecule sections of the book. But, uh, you know, I, I, I knew that going into it, that, you know, writing about entheogenic molecules and people claiming to see space aliens when they took these kinds of things, you know, I knew that would be controversial. Um, I don't uh, I don't advocate the use of psychedelics, you know, like that for recreational use, and I certainly would never tell someone, you know, if you want to go see an alien, you need to go take drugs. You know, I've never even done these things myself, and that's what shocks so many people about the book. They're like, you've never done drugs, and yet you, you write this book about these things. But, you know, I did want to try and maintain some degree at least of journalistic integrity, and so I hope that you know by by maintaining objective and keeping myself outside the circle, so to speak, um, I've been able to do that with the book, and, and certainly that is that is one part of it. Yeah. Did you look at white powder gold, that whole thing at all? Oh, uh, monatomic gold. You yeah. Know, <clears throat> that and um, and alchemy in general. Those are those are very interesting subjects, and I had books uh, uh, on monatomic gold and alchemy, and I actually corresponded a good bit with my buddy Jim Mars about monatomic gold. Oh yeah. Gold. Yeah. During the writing process, now I didn't, um, I didn't put a whole lot of that into the book, although you know that was a suggestion that many people made. But um, you know, th and this is the whole thing. There are so many different parallels that I could have tied in with the subject matter that made it into the book. Another one that would have been good would have been a. Uh, Julian James and his notion of the breakdown of the bicameral mind, and, uh, and 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 the notion essentially that you know the two hemispheres of the brain almost acted independent of one another in earlier, uh, you know, humans. So yeah. th this stuff, you know, and the way it relates to altered states of consciousness and the strange kinds of uh, you know uh, almost psychic things that occur to people even today. Um, there, there are so many avenues that I could have gone down, but. Trying to keep it as, as direct and, and to the punch, you know, so that you know, directly, you know, on, on point with the subject matter. I had to, <laughs> I had to omit a few of those things. But yeah, monatomic gold is certain, uh, certainly something that's very interesting, and I guess there are certain ways that that would tie in with this, yes, as well as alchemy in general, especially in the magic capacity. Looking at the synopsis here a little bit, uh, I'm reminded of a previous conversation that I'd had with Marie Jones, and just that, you know, I'm looking at the words ancient magicians and thinking about those. You know, um, cults or whatever you want to call them. You know, groups of uh, secret, secret type groups in the uh, ancient times. And is this the sort of knowledge you think that they might have had? Because you know, there's two sort of schools of thought, and they're probably you know two sort of uh, different avenues of knowledge. You know, the stuff that's now you know knowledge that we take for granted, like geometry and stuff that they kept secret back then. That was like now it's like, oh geez, why were you? Keeping pie a secret, that's not even not worth keeping secret. But, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but then there's probably other stuff that, you know, maybe is, you know, still secret to us that is within the realm of what we're talking about here. Right, yeah, and, and when it comes especially to the mystery cults, you know, like the Pythagorean mystery cults, and especially those, uh, you know, in ancient Greece, um, with their number systems, their, their concept of a monad, you know, which was kind of, you know, the one, you know, which represented the universe, you know, I do delve into that quite a bit in the book, um, as well as the ancient Greek practice.
practice of the psychomantium that was later popularized uh, more recently, very recently, actually within the last few decades, um, by uh, Dr. Raymond Moody. You know, he, he talks about it a good bit in his book, uh, Reunions. Um, and, you know, I actually, as, as you know, right now, uh, I'm, I'm almost, uh, I'm about to enter a lemur <laughs> meeting here with Joshua and some of the guys and whatnot. And here at the lemur laboratory, we actually have uh, a psychomantium that we've built. And all that is really is just a very dimly lit room that has a mirror uh, across the room from from where you, the uh, participant, or if, of course, if we wanted to go back to the ancient Greek cults, you know, you'd call yourself the initiate. So uh, to borrow that term, the initiate would sit in the chair and they'll stare into the indirect optic depth of the mirror. And uh, and this has a, an effect very similar to the Gonsfeld effect where you place ping pong ball halves over your eyes and, and you're able to kind of uh, enter a theta state. And then once you can kind of get your brain functioning on a different uh, level of consciousness, th this is where strange and, and what are perceived to be psychic effects begin to happen. So certainly the ancient Greeks and the mystery cults did that. Um, and, and other, you know, people who practiced quote-unquote magic throughout uh, throughout history did this also. And actually, you know, bringing it back to the uh, the idea of monatomic gold and trying to uh, to use uh, certain elements to create gold. Um, I guess I do talk about that some uh, with with regard to John D. and Edward Kelly, who were also trying to do that. That was, um, I think, one of Edward Kelly's uh, great aspirations. Whereas John D. really wanted to just you know take it from the perspective of contacting sentient intelligences. Uh, you know, Edward Kelly, of course, I think thought that maybe in some capacities he could he could get rich off of it as well. And he was in, he ended up being hired by people who who had hoped that his prowess with the magical arts would actually uh, allow him to learn to distill, you know, elements of uh, of time and space and create uh, wealth from those. And I think uh, history tells us he failed in some capacity. Although some people think he he did really well. Aleister Crowley really, uh, you know, held uh, Edward Kelly in very high regard. But yeah, you could look at all these ancient uh, magical practices and things like that. And, and again, especially the early ones, like we talked about in the mystery cults and things. And those elements do exist there. So where do you think all this stuff is going? That to tie it back a little bit to sort of what I was talking about, do you think that that knowledge then at some point got kind of lost in a way that now we have these different people who have come along and tried to sort of re-pick up where these ancients knew what was going on? Right, yeah, the knowledge of the ancients. There seems to be this kind of uh, this notion in, in modern occult circles and things that there may have been ancient races that existed here on Earth long ago. And it, it's compelling because once you get into, uh, you know, some of these reports of, of, of finding, uh, you know, ancient microscopic nanotechnology embedded in rock and things like that, you know, in parts of Russia and Mongolia and other parts, you know, of the world, uh, there, there does seem to be evidence that there was more going on, uh, you know, on our planet in ancient times, and I'm talking about ancient times that predated our concept of early man and prehistory. Um, there, you know, I, I, there have been wonderful books that have been written about this by people like Brad Steiger, so I don't have to get into that right now. But the the notion that there were other, uh, you know, cultures and that they had, uh, you know, whether it be a magical or a mystical or even a technological prowess that does not exist today, that that is something that kind of exists in the fringes of occult and esoteric uh, studies even today. So. I do hear that a lot, and I've and I've been asked that question before. Uh, is there are there great secrets you know that have existed and that are somehow they've been passed down by secret societies or in ancient texts that have been found, and are there people today who are trying to tap into those uh, you know spirit technologies to try and use these to contact other worlds and things like that? The short answer I think is yes. I think that the uh, the psychomantium that I've mentioned uh, represents that in some capacity. I think. Um, 
I think uh, another another representation of that would probably be uh, ecstatic body postures that have been practiced by the uh, the Eastern mystics for years, because these things also tend to uh, elicit uh, altered states of consciousness in conjunction with meditation and things like that. And then finally, if you want to look at you know in the South American jungles where there are ayahuasca, you know the, the, the very powerful yage made from the Banisteriopsis uh, capai. Liana plant, actually, Liana vine is the uh, is the short name for it. But uh, uh, you know, when paired uh, with certain uh, plants there that grow in the jungle, certain varieties of the ayahuasca actually have plants that contain DMT also. And the active ingredients uh, in the uh, in the Liana vine allow the DMT to be broken down and become um, orally active. And so these people can drink this tea and have these powerful mystic experiences. You have people today like Rick Strassman, who at his Cottonwood um, Research uh, Center that he's uh, either has already established or is in the process of putting that together. I think he's wanting to do an ayahuasca study there and, and you know, once again, try and measure these effects, uh, you know, on people today um, using spirit technologies that have been used for centuries or maybe thousands of years elsewhere in the world. So, yeah, I do think that there are aspects of cultures that have existed for a long time that people today, for whatever reason, are trying to tap back into. They're trying to, I don't want to say it's getting back to the primitive because these may not have always been things practiced by primitive cultures per se, um, we don't know. I think there are a lot of things about Earth's history that we uh, th that are still shrouded in so much mystery that we don't understand exactly what was going on. But nonetheless, we have these these you know these aspects of, of humanity and culture that do indicate that there's something else going on. The ancients used them, and yes, people today I think are trying to tap into those uses and finding modern uh, uses for those things as well. Yeah, yeah, and, and like the natural question is like, where do you see all this going? And it does sound like it might be some kind of marriage to, to get even more into alliteration, some kind of marriage between the magic and the mysticism with the molecule. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, because I think that that's the, the, the thing is that whether, you know, you, you can separate those three things, which I did, I guess, in some capacity in the book, but, you know, when you, when you buy a copy of Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, you know, the thing you have to keep in mind is that I'm trying to make the association between all these things. And when I'm in the magic section of the book talking about a, a very vivid and very frightening experience that a friend of mine had in the Psychomantium, um, and as a matter of fact, actually, uh, not the chapter that deals with the actual experience, but the chapter um, that precedes that chapter in the book, I've posted uh, in a in a blog post at my website, the Grayling Report, and people can go to that. And you can actually read a sample chapter of the book that describes in detail the psychomantium and how it works. But uh, you know, in the chapter where I'm detailing this experience, my friend, who's actually a lemur uh, investigator uh, as well as myself, um, it, while I'm detailing this this experience that he had. I'm also going into the effects that, uh, you know, something, a psychedelic uh, tryptamine like dimethyltryptamine has on the mind. And what's interesting about dimethyltryptamine specifically is, although it is an illegal drug uh, and, it, and it is a very powerful hallucinogen that, you know, I do not, I mean, it has, a, you know, physical effects on the human body as well, and it's not the kind of thing that's really safe to play around with. Um, this is also a molecule, a tryptamine that is produced in the human body. Uh, we hypothesize that it is produced in the, uh, the pineal gland. Uh, we don't know for certain, but we, we, we seem to think that that's kind of uh, where this stuff uh, emanates from in the human body. So, obviously, to be produced in our bodies, it has to have some sort of effect on the human body uh, that controls you know, bodily functions and, and mental capacities in some way or another. We don't understand the, to the full extent how that is. 
but I wonder sometimes if, uh, you know, when people have these, these almost hallucinatory kind of experiences, these vivid experiences through meditation or through uh, using something like a psychomantium to evoke an altered state of consciousness, is it actually tapping into kind of an internal release of something like DMT? It's, it's produced in our bodies, so, you know, how can we rule out that that isn't actually what's behind some of these magical and mystical experiences that people report having? So, you know, you're right. I think it does look at kind of a marriage between these things, and what we're seeing more and more is that there is an inter interrelationship between them, although we can try and categorize them and classify them aside from one another, there are interrelationships between them that can't be ignored, and we're just beginning to, oh, scrape the very surface of what those interrelationships actually are. Yeah, I think that's where it's all going to head eventually, some kind of scientific unlocking of of the mysticism part to it. And it's going to get scary, you know. <laughs> I'll warn you, it's not going to be pretty, I'm sure, as, as we learn more and more about this. But uh, it, it will be a learning experience for humanity, nonetheless. Hey, I cheer for the story, Micah, so. Yeah. If it's scary, that's fine with me. I got nothing to lose. Right, I know that. That's why we're in this <laughs> business, right, Tim? <laughs> exactly. Um, I'll keep you just like five more minutes. Is that cool? That's fine. All right. Well, you got to just share this little story here and if you and, and, and tie it in to, to the book and what you're talking about here in the book. And we'll have the linkage up to the excerpt that you've posted at the Gorillion Report, but I, I, I'm reading it here and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it. I, I, I gave it a once-over earlier and, and I forgot to make the point about this. The uh, this story here about Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. And his room in the Neverland Ranch with uh, walls covered in mirrors, which is kind of creepy here because the office that I'm sitting in, the Banal of America Audio headquarters, is covered in, in mirrors. That's kind of the decorative motif. So I have my own mirror room, but I've never You're had the any. You're the modern mystic. You're the modern mystic, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, well, with, with regard to, uh, to Michael Jackson having a room full of mirrors, I, I think it's funny, first of all, because there's that song, you know, I'm looking at the man in the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and, uh, and, I, and I make that uh, point in the book. It, it's funny because the, the story that Michael Jackson told and and I think actually that this is in the uh, in the chapter that I've put up yeah. you know for free on the website. So yeah, go to the Grayland Report and you can read more about this. But the story was that Michael Jackson claimed he had a room uh, in Neverland Ranch that was covered in mirrors. And when he would go in that room, he'd kind of go in there to relax and kind of meditate. And he said that the ghost of Liberace <laughs> would come into uh, you know would would appear in this room and would talk to Michael Jackson and would uh, would interact him and apparently they knew each other before Liberace's death and uh and and Michael Jackson said that uh that, that Liberace was kind of like a mentor kind of a, a you know a, a guardian angel I think was a term he used especially after Liberace's death and he said that uh he called him Lee and he'd say you know I'd go in that room and Lee would appear and uh and that's where he would talk to me that's where I hear him and uh and he said that Liberace even gave him uh permission to uh, record his theme song, I'll Be Seeing You. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty bizarre story, but, um, you know, take it for what it is. I think it's it's, it's pretty interesting that, that, you know, like so many others have said about, you know, perceiving spirits of the dead in mirrors, uh, Michael Jackson also had his experience, and, and it wasn't just that he saw strange things. I mean, he saw a specific individual who he had known in life, and he would go into a room full of mirrors in his own home and, uh, and uh, and would have these experiences, and, and he, he seemed to allude to it like this happened more than once. Like he could, anytime he was kind of having a hard time or was feeling down, he'd go in this room full of mirrors and talk to Liberace's ghost. So it's not the kind of thing you hear about every day, but uh, but there are other many other stories of people using psychomantiums and other mirrored services, uh, you know.
you know, through scrying and things like that to elicit very similar uh, experiences. Yeah, it goes kind of back to not, and I'm not being trivial about this, but it goes back to you know, like the whole uh, the Snow White thing, you know, and the mirror, oh, mirror, yeah. you know. It, this is, sounds like something that's been a long-standing esoteric, uh, you know, alchemical type. Uh, tradition, if you will. You're absolutely right. And that's not being trivial at all. I mean, you know, Snow White, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall. That What that is, is, I mean, you know, the, the, it's tapping into the folkloric aspect of reflective surfaces and the strange effects that they can have on the mind. Uh, you know, people, I think that, uh, you know, the, 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 the urban legend of Bloody Mary and things like that, you know, kind of tap into this as well. Uh, Raymond Moody had said that he had actually found uh, Greco-Egyptian um, uh, kind of, um, I guess, documents of some sort, you know, scrolls uh, that, that, that described, he didn't find these himself, I, I'm assuming that, you know, that they were discovered and that he knew of them, um, although I'm sure, you know, Raymond Moody, I've met him and, and he, I, I could see him being a bit of a swashbuckler uh, at times <laughs> in his life, but, but Moody had, uh, you know, had described, you know, looking at these ancient documents that talked about links between, you know, the Greeks and what they were doing, you know, apparently with this Necumantian, I think is what they called it, uh, which, you know, became what Moody calls the psychomantium, and then Egyptians who were also engaging in very similar mirror-gazing practices. And when I say scrying, again, you know, talking about John Dee and Edward Kelly, this is the literal practice of, you know, staring into either a, uh, what was called a shoe stone, or sometimes uh, they, they, I think that there was actually a black obsidian mirror that Cortez had brought back from Central America that John Dee actually used in some of his scrying sessions where he and uh, Edward Kelly would communicate with these Enochian angels. And, uh, you know, although Edward Kelly was the one who primarily was doing the uh, the actual interaction with these spirit intelligences, you know, John Dee himself also claimed on at least maybe a couple of occasions in his life to have physically seen um, an angel that he called Medini, and uh, and to have interacted with him and to have actually corresponded himself, but for the most part, he actually used uh, you know Edward Kelly kind of as a as a conduit, you know, as a medium to the spirit realm. And many of these people uh, throughout history used reflective surfaces to evoke these experiences. Unbelievable stuff, but crazy at the same time. I, I love it. I love it. All right, we'll we'll wrap it up here because I know that now you that now you're probably going to be like charged extra dues or something at the oh yeah by the yeah. lemur people. Let me get That's the. Okay. <laughs> 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 um, this is what I really like about you, Mikey. You really seem to dig up a lot of nuggets that I'd never heard before, and I have a feeling that that's the case here with magic, mysticism, and the molecule. And I'm looking forward to getting my hands on a copy of it and having you on here for a, you know, a longer, full-length session to discuss the book. Like I said, you know, you really managed to dig up some stuff that just completely blow my mind. And I'm like, where does he find this stuff? But you, you do it. You, I mean, you're a very diligent, hardworking researcher, so. Thank you I look much. forward to seeing what you've got in the book here because uh, I have a feeling once you've gotten your chance now here to stretch your legs out and put it together in a book, it's going to be just mind-blowing stuff. Excellent. Well, you know what? Anytime I'm, I'm ready to come on, we'll do that, and uh, we'll, we'll delve into these and other mysteries. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, yes, uh, that'll be something I'll certainly look forward to. Well, how can people get their hands on magic, mysticism, and the molecule? Well, you can you can get it right through my website if you go to the Graylian Report, G-R-A-L-I-E-N Report.com. Uh, right there at the top of the page to the right, you'll see, you know, buy magic mysticism and the molecule, and I've got a link right there at the top of the right-hand column. All you have to do is click on the book itself, and uh, that'll take you directly to an e-store that I've set up there through the Graylian Report where you can buy the book. And uh, if you're interested in getting signed copies, you can also just uh, email.
email me at info at graylandreport.com, and I will uh, be happy to uh, have some information sent to you about how that you can uh, how you can order a signed copy directly from me. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, folks, you heard it from him right here. You want to pick up Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule. It sounds really good. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on it, as I said, and, and getting the chance to dig into it and hopefully in the future dig into it with you and talk more about it. But until then, get ahead of the curve, my friends, and pick up the book so we can all talk about it in the future here on the show. Micah, thanks for coming back on the show. I really appreciate it. And, you know, best of luck with this book. I hope it's the first of many more Tales of the Bizarre and Unexplained to come from you. Absolutely. Thank you, Tim, and I'll look forward to talking to you again soon, my man. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks to Micah A. Hanks for coming on for the post-show stop and chat, as well as Bill and Nancy Burns for giving us so much time in the main interview for the program. You can find out more from Micah A. Hanks at GraylianReport.com, G-R-A-L-I-E-N, Report.com. Check that out for more information on Micah's new book, Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule. And as we noted at the end of the Bill and Nancy Burns interview, you want to check out their websites, www.ufomag.com. And the website for their new podcast is futuretheater.com. Pretty simple, all one word, future theater.com. You can also find links to that via ufomag.com. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And we've got two emails here this week, kind of long ones. The first one comes from Betty, no hometown listed, just Betty. And here's what she has to say. I found your website a couple of months ago and have been listening to lots of your archived shows. You do a real nice job interviewing people. This morning I was listening to your 122809 show in which you used Lady Gaga's song, Poker Face. You seem to be pretty on top of things, so maybe you used that song in spite of the controversy that surrounds Lady Gaga and the meaning behind that song in particular. In case you weren't aware of her bizarre behavior, you might want to check out an article at VigilantCitizen.com or check out this highly recommended but lengthy series, TheIndustryExposed.com. Several episodes feature info on Lady Gaga, And, all in all, it is full of astounding information. Cheers, Betty. Thank you for writing in, Betty. Ironically enough, uh, I've been trying to track down the Vigilant Citizen guy to do an interview on the whole Lady Gaga conspiracy, if you will, and haven't heard back from him yet. If we do get him on the show, I'm sure you'll be hearing from him. I am hoping to talk to him, because I'm really a big Lady Gaga fan and would love to know more about his thoughts on this whole mind-control Illuminati aspect of her work. I will say that, not to give away too much, but next week's guest will be R. Gary Patterson, a powerhouse researcher of the occult and esoteric connections with rock and roll. And we do delve into the whole Lady Gaga conspiracy theory on next week's episode. So you definitely want to tune in to the program for that if you want some more Lady Gaga stuff. With regards to why I chose the song, quite simply, uh, there wasn't any insider reference involved there. Since it was the year in review episode, I tried to pick a song that was uh, pretty hugely popular in the zeitgeist for 2009, and Poker Face was definitely one of those songs. So there wasn't any real conspiracy theory on my end related to using Poker Face 
any more than there might have been a conspiracy theory for me using Susan Boyle on the second half of the Year in Review episode. So altogether, Betty, tune in to the program next week. Our Gary Patterson will get his thoughts on the Lady Gaga conspiracy. The next email comes from Michael in Huntsville, Alabama. And here's what he has to say. I just discovered your show. I don't know why I haven't heard it earlier. I'm really enjoying it. I've been listening to the show on my iPhone, and why would anyone use anything else? And it has a setting to listen to podcasts at half, one, or two times normal speed. I usually listen to podcasts on the two times normal speed, because usually everyone is perfectly understandable at that speed, and I can get through a two-hour show in an hour that way. I find it interesting that at double speed you often have odd clicks and whirls in the background. It's almost, but not quite, voices. It's kind of freaky. I started listening to your Stanton Friedman holiday special, which was amazing. For the rest of the season, I was hooked. I even went back and picked a few back episodes to catch, and the one, or should I say three, with Bruce Rocks was amazing. Best podcast ever. Keep up the good work, Michael in Huntsville, Alabama. There you go, that was Michael's email. Thank you for running in, Michael. I do sometimes myself listen to the program at two times normal speed, but usually that's these uh, voiceover parts at the end, just so I can hurry up and edit them. I don't know about the odd clicks and whirls, but as anyone who's been following the program for a while knows, we use pretty much the most ludite form of podcasting that there is. I don't know anything about Skype or mixing boards or anything like that. We use old, old, old school style of recording, but I kind of like it that way. Although I understand why it does not always transition well to the digital realm. As such, I'm sure all those odd clicks and whirls are the result of our old school style of podcasting. I hope you don't try and decipher those mysterious voices, because then you're just going to get into all kinds of weird mind-bending stuff that probably isn't even in there at all, almost certainly isn't even (laughs) in there at all. So don't do anything like that, Michael. Thank you for your props on the program, Stanton Friedman Holiday Special, one of my favorite shows every year, and the Bruce Rucks Trilogy still getting emails to this day, my friends. I'm hoping to get Bruce back on the show in Season 5 at some point, hopefully soon, to talk about his first book, I still try and keep in touch with him, even though I've been having a terribly busy schedule here this last month. And he's doing well, and I'm hoping that he's looking forward to a return appearance on BOA Audio, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. So there you go. Thanks for writing in, Michael. I really appreciate it. Glad you've discovered the show. You definitely want to dig into the archive. There's tons of episodes in there that I'm sure you have not checked out yet that will blow your mind. So do that and you'll have a wealth of BOA audio to experience while you wait for the next episodes to get posted as Season 5 rolls onward. Thanks for writing in, Michael and Betty. Your feedback was hugely appreciated. And if you're out there listening right now and you'd like to be a part of BOA audio listener feedback, there's three main ways to do it. Let me go through them real quick for you. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Or go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the contact button. And the final method is to go to the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. That's where you can find me and a whole bunch of other wild and crazy guys and gals talking about the world of the paranormal and the world of pop culture. 
culture. We're always looking for new folks to join up at the forum, and we're always welcoming newcomers with open arms. The US of E, it's the place to be, the official BOA forum. So those are the three methods, email, contact button, and forum. Also, you can hit me up on Facebook, MySpace, or Twitter. Any of those methods puts your correspondence into my hands for a future edition of BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, we thank the amazing BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carolin, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. As we noted at the end of the baseball special, this team of awesome writers carried BOA for the last month while BOA Audio was on hiatus. Way too much stuff for me to plug here from the BOA staff. I'll just say that everybody on the team contributed at least one new piece to the website throughout the month of March. Other folks on there had two or three pieces even. So there's tons of stuff to read at BOA covering a wealth of different paranormal genres. A lot of stuff which falls through the cracks and does not get picked up here on the audio program. As such, I'll use the mantra we've been saying week in and week out here at the end of the show. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Men All of America, you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Tax season is right around the corner and I'm going to get hit hard, my friends. So I'm going to turn it over to you here now and ask you to make a donation to BOA and help us weather the latest financial storm, which is going to hit the mothership in a matter of a few weeks. How do you do that? How do you make a donation and help us out? That simple. You go to Banal of America or the BOA Audio Archive page and click the PayPal button. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the whole enterprise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. I already teased it earlier here in the end cap, but let me plug what we've got for you next week on BOA Audio. Our guest is R. Gary Patterson, author of a number of books, including Paul is Dead, as well as his more recent book, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll, Myths, Legends, and Curses. For those of you who don't know of our Gary Patterson, he is a powerhouse investigator of the connection between rock music and the esoteric, and he's been one of the most frequently requested guests from the BOA Audio listeners over the years. So it was only a matter of time before RGP came to BOA, and it's happening next week on the program. Don't turn your nose up at the pop culture theme, my friends, because this is some riveting stuff. We're going to be covering the occult influences on Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones, the mind control rock star meme, backwards tracks found in music both intentionally and imagined, the Paul is dead conspiracy theory regarding Paul McCartney, the mysterious deaths of Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, and Jim Morrison, as well as a ton of other fascinating connections between pop culture and the paranormal. Our Gary Patterson is a masterful storyteller and really someone I could listen to all day long. It is a wildly entertaining edition of BOA Audio. I'm sure it's going to stand amongst the signature interviews here on Season 5 as R. Gary Patterson 
finally arrives on BOA Audio. That's next week on the program. It should be hitting your podcast feeds and the website mm, probably around Wednesday or Thursday. Don't hold me to that. We're in the end game here of Season 5, so expect things to be a little bit sporadic. But at the same time, expect some wild and huge interviews here on BOA Audio as we roll through to the finale of Season 5. And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio. I didn't harp on this at the end of the baseball special because I know that a fair amount of the hardcore listeners, even those folks who are tuning in this far into the show, just don't tune in to the baseball special. I fully understand that and can respect that. But I know that the true hardcore serious maniac members of VOA Nation are still listening to me speak right now. And I want to thank all those folks out there. You guys are the fuel that drives the machine. You guys are the ones who make this whole thing possible. So I want to thank you for your support of the program. Thanks for picking us back up again after our hiatus. I never worry too much about taking the downtime because I know the BOA Audio listeners are fervent and feverish and ready to rock and roll as soon as the new episodes are posted, no matter how long the wait. That's because you guys are the best. Thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.